Welcome to episode six of Painting the Corners, the podcast of baseball and international affairs. We had kind of a long and fun but winding conversation this week on this week's episode. We covered a lot of topics. We covered on the political front the kind of obstacles for democracy as uh, around the world in the new geopolitical, current geopolitical climate. Talked about the challenges as the U.S. becomes an increasingly as the flaws of American democracy are so blatantly on display. How that affects the ability for the U.S. and also the West to model democracy. Uh, for the rest of the world. On the baseball front, we spent some time on that great Mets-Giants game, that one-game play-in. We talked about the postseason more generally, and we talked about some other kind of bigger-picture questions around baseball. When is the time to sell? When is the time to to uh, hold on to your older players? We spent some time. We got a little bit in the weeds on the Mets as well. I want to apologize. Any discussion about democracy is going to spend a fair amount of time on Donald Trump, and this is not a, a podcast about Donald Trump, but it seems like an unavoidable topic. With any luck, that stain on our democracy will be defeated on November 8th, and we won't have to spend as much time on him in the future. If you're new to the podcast, or even if you're not, uh, my name is Lincoln Mitchell. I tweet at Lincoln Mitchell. I Instagram at Lincoln A. Mitchell. I tend to tweet more than Instagram. My website is www.lincolnmitchell.com, and my email address is lincoln at lincolnmitchell.com. My new book, Will Big League Baseball Survive? Globalization, the End of Television, Youth Sports, and the Future of Big League Baseball or future Major League Baseball, actually, will be out. It's out pretty much now. You can pre-order at Amazon or Powell's. You can get it directly to the publisher, Temple University Press. Uh, if you are in New York on December 1st and you'd like to come to an event, I'll be doing a reading, a reading a discussion at Bergino's Baseball Clubhouse on 11th Street. That's at 7 p.m. on December 1st. If you're interested in talking to me about the book or in hosting an event or putting an event together, please let me know. I tend to spend most of my time in New York and in the Bay Area, but I'm open to going other places. Now I'm going to take a moment and introduce our guest. Our baseball guest today is John Lewin. John has been a Met fan since 1968. I think maybe he jumped on the bandwagon just before it took off. And has been writing the blog Subway Squawkers with Lisa Swan, a Yankee fan since 2006. That uh, Subway Squawkers blog originally was part of the Daily News website. Now they're on their own. Lisa was actually the guest in our inaugural uh, podcast. Lisa just writes about the Yankees. John focuses more on the Mets. John's recently wrote an essay called Andy Messersmith, Charlie Finley, and George Steinbrenner in the Cambridge Companion to Baseball. You can follow him more at www.subwaysquawkers.com. Roland Rich is our international affairs guest today. He teaches political science at Rutgers University, but I really know him from his before he was at Rutgers, where he's had a long career in diplomacy, working both for the Australian Foreign Ministry and for the UN, which is where I first heard of him. Uh, he was executive head of the United Nations Democracy Fund from 2007 to 2014. He's also taught at the Australian Defense College, has been a research fellow at the uh, National Endowment for Democracy here in the United States, and was the foundation director for the Center for Democratic Institutions at the Australian National University. And that's kind of Australia's Democracy Promotion Institute focusing, not surprisingly, on the Asia-Pacific region. Before that, he was in the Australian Foreign Service beginning in 1975, and he was posted, among other places, Paris, Rangoon, and Manila. And he served for three years from 94 to 97 as the Australian ambassador to Laos. Uh, his most recent book is called Parties and Parliaments in Southeast Asia, Nonpartisan Chambers in Indonesia, Thailand, and the Philippines. That was published by Rutledge in 2012. His next book, which is kind of a work in progress now, is called Democracy in Crisis. Before we get to the podcast, just a couple of notes. When we recorded, it was the morning of Game 5 of the Dodgers National Series. So we speak of that game not knowing what the outcome was. There was some discussion in the podcast about Dave Roberts, the first-year manager of the Dodgers, and some suggestion that 
some of the Dodgers' success this year is due to the work that, that Roberts did. If you happen to have caught that Game 5 or read about it, you saw that it was really not just a great game, and I say this as someone who is not exactly a big Dodger fan, but, but a game where Dave Roberts did some interesting managerial moves, which, which appear to have paid off. And right now, we'll, we'll see what happens in the, next, in the next round. Another, just a correction here, I quoted uh, Jacob Weisberg, who is at Slate Magazine on a podcast, where he said that Hillary Clinton is running, and I'm paraphrasing, running for president, Donald Trump is running for dictator. And I think that's a very concise way of putting it. However, I didn't say Jacob Weisberg, I said Joseph Weisberg. Joseph and Jacob are brothers. Joseph Weisberg is not at Slate. He is, among other things, the creator of the television show The Americans. Now, in my view, The Americans is, is a great show, and totally unrelated, and, and you should watch it if you get a chance, but it's the wrong brother. Jacob is the guy at Slate, Joseph is the guy at The Americans. So with that correction in mind, I hope you enjoyed this discussion. So Roland and John, thank you for joining me today on Episode 6 of Painting the Corners. Um, Roland, I'm going to begin with, with you. We're in, you've had a, a career, many decades of working in democracy work, democracy promotion, and we're in this moment now where countries, people all over the world are looking at the West, looking at, at some Western countries and what's going on, or as Donald Trump would say, there's something going on there, we don't know what it is, but looking at, at for example, our election play out and wondering maybe these, this democracy idea doesn't work as well as we thought, or, or, as, or as we've been told people in those countries might be saying. How do you, what do you think about that? Does this make it harder when you look at this kind of stain on the American democratic principles um, that we're seeing play out, does this make it harder for democracy promotion? It makes it harder for democracy promotion. It makes it harder to um, make democracy work in um, both advanced and developing countries. Uh, look, I think we all thought it was going to be a lot easier than this. Uh, we thought that uh, because democracy is such a good system that somehow or another people would make it work. But um, we've come to realize that, um, firstly, it's not linear. There are going to be downs. And we've seen some really down periods in the last few years. It actually began with Bush v. Gore. Bush v. Gore was the first big stain on democracy as seen by the rest of the world. Because here we had a... Um, a system where the world's leading democracy was unable to make its election work. And then when we dug down, we saw how incompetent the American electoral administration system was, still is. Uh, um, we saw how partisan the court system was. So all this really... How partisan uh, the electoral officials were, right? Partisan election officials. Election officials. You know, an African colleague said to me, so let me get this right. The... The, the, the election was decided in the state where the candidate's brother is the governor. And the court that made the decision uh, was had um, on its bench the majority. Every single one was appointed either while the president's father was president or vice president. So that's how we do it in Africa. Uh, um, you know, this was a real stain on democracy. Um, and now we have... I think the Iraq invasion was the next big stain when, when uh, um, it was said that it was done in the name of democracy after the first two excuses didn't work. Um, and now we have this next big stain, frankly, demagoguery. And so, yes, democracy is definitely in trouble and we're having trouble making it work and we're having a lot more trouble selling it. Maybe as a, as a follow-up, given a kind of global perspective here, do you see... 
our campaign as it's playing out now, and I'm not talking about Hillary Clinton here, I'm talking about you know, the other campaign. Um, do you see this as real evidence of democratic rollback in the United States, or do you see this as an aberration, and how do you think that's seen globally? Well, I mean, clearly it's evidence of polarization, of a, an ugly sort of polarization where one part of the community is simply not prepared to even countenance talking with or accepting the other part of the community. So, uh, um, you know, that's clearly a problem here. Um, I think it's a problem of society even more than democracy in the U.S., to be quite honest. Um, uh, you know, I don't think the U.S. has dealt with uh, racism um, the way perhaps it needs to, and, and we still see evidence of that. We've seen evidence of that in the last uh, eight years, and I can tell you something, Lincoln, in the next four years we're going to see a lot of evidence of misogyny. We've already seen it in the last We've already years. seen it, but we're going to see a lot more. Um, and, and here I can, you know, also tell you that when we had a female Prime Minister of Australia, Julia Gillard, a whole new standard was created. A whole new standard. Not just what is her action, what's her political opinion, what are her policies, all that, plus how does she look, what's her hair, what's she wearing, why is she childless, became one of the big issues in Australian politics. Where the hell did that come from? You know, and so... We're going to see a lot of misogyny in the next few years. I think society needs to talk these things out. Uh, and I'm not that confident that the American system, frankly, allows that. To Changing subjects a little bit. So the Mets had an interesting year. They ended up in the playoffs. It wasn't clear they'd make it there. They lost game one against a you know, very tough pitcher who really mm -hmm. pitched an extraordinary game. And Noah Syndergaard met him most of the way, but then the bullpen faltered. Where do the Mets go from here? Well, it really comes down to... Cespedes, whether or not they get him back, because if they get him back, I think they're actually in reasonably good shape. I mean, they still have things they need to do. They still, they don't really have a center fielder. The, the, the catcher situation is very disappointing. They've got two good young, supposedly good young catchers, Darno and Pulecki, but they have not really come through, especially Darno. And, um, and, but if they have Cespedes, then there are things they could do. Like, for example, Jay Bruce would probably be extraneous, so they could sign him, they could pick up his option, and then they could trade him, maybe, maybe for a center fielder or a catcher, ideally. They, they could move uh, uh, Conforto to first base, ideally. And I just think they, there's a lot of stuff they can do that would work. But if they don't have Cespedes, then they're in big trouble. Because even with Cespedes, they were something like 26th in the league in runs scored. Their offense is based mostly on home runs if they don't they, they were supposedly being built on a team that had an on-base percentage and the on-base percentage is terrible they either had a home run they, they only score runs with home runs so without Cespedes they really would have to look they would be just a terrible offensive team and they would need to, they would need to replace that big bat first of all I mean it's the uh, even if you have a bunch of great people get on base all the time you still want somebody to drive them in and um, and Cespedes is really it's if, if they don't get Cespedes, the options on the on the market don't look that promising. I mean, because I mean, there's Edward Encarnacion or Mark Trumbo, but they're, these are people that it's the same sort of thing. Like Trumbo, I think, has a career OBP oh, yeah. of something like 300. And neither of them do anything with the glove. Right. Right. I mean, you don't have a DH. majority DH. So, so what you have is the Mets already have this team where they have a lot of you know home run hitters who, who aren't always good fielders and so that would that would be a problem and but the other thing with the Mets is and I, I know this is certainly you know, the Yankees know all about this is that not everybody can play in New York and so you get a guy like like when Jay Bruce first came to New York he 
he hit under 200. And he did better in the last week or so, but who knows? Do you Cespedes, we know. He can right. play in New York. How real is that? I mean, this is one of those things where if you're, I mean, I'm kind of half a New Yorker, half not. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, what, what strikes me is there are players who, I mean, I look, I mean, Tim Lincecum, for example, could never play in Texas. Right? There are players, I mean, there are certain personality types that, that you know, Tim Lincecum right now can't really play anywhere in the mm-hmm. major leagues. But when he was at his best, right. you know, he could play in Oakland, San Francisco, Seattle. Culturally, that was going to be the fit for him, and then he's mm-hmm. going to have a hard time. Right. Uh, in other places. How, how real is that, particularly for the Mets, who aren't the Yankees, right? You don't have, and the post-Starnbender Yankees aren't really the, because a lot of what a guy like Ed Whitson had was that Starnbender at that time was really nuts. Mm-hmm. And playing for him really did require a special temperament. But, and also in this media age, I mean, anybody can screw up their career by tweeting the wrong thing today, right. baseball player, non-baseball player. How real do you think that is for the Mets? I, I think... I think it does seem to be real. I mean, we can look at it. I mean, I'm, I'm not an athlete, and so to me, it's like if you can go on the field and play, why can't you just play anywhere and you're going to be on TV? But, but it does seem to make a difference. There's some that I, I also feel like, well, every, it's, almost, it's a national media at this point, but, but, but you keep hearing players say, well, when I'm in the Cincinnati clubhouse, there are two reporters. In the Mets clubhouse, there are 30 reporters, and everything examined to the nth degree. And, and maybe, maybe even with somebody like Bruce, I mean, if you stick around long enough, you might get used to it, you might do well, but... People are impatient. You don't and the headlines are a lot nastier right. in New York. I think the, the price you pay for failure is greater in New York. Yes. But um, on a perhaps on a related note, I, I do think that one of the things that's good about the Mets is that players seem to want to play for the Mets, which was has often not been the case. I mean, the Mets have had this history of when, when they traded for Keith Hernandez, and at the end of the season, like, well, he doesn't want to play. He's I don't want to play for the Mets. They're this horrible team. And he ends up signing Piazza. He doesn't really want to be here, but, like, all these guys, they don't want to be here, but they grudgingly do it because they Mets pony up with the money at, at those times. But in this case, Cespedes supposedly took less money, and people seem to, for the most part, want to play for the Mets. So I think the climate of a team can make a difference. Right, and a team that's now, you know, made it to the World Series one year, made right. it to the playoffs the next. Yeah, they have some problems, but this suggests that this is a team that's, you know, the ownership's going to invest in putting a winning team on the field, mm-hmm. which I'm sure helps attract players, too. I want to follow up on this question about the home run, because, you know, going, I mean, if you read baseball history, as late as 1965, 1970, people, older baseball fans, thought that Ty Cobb was a better baseball player than Babe Ruth, mm-hmm. and there was still this kind of bias against the home run. You know, in 1969, there's this famous vote by the Baseball Writers Association that Joe DiMaggio was the greatest living baseball player, which is just, I mean, Joe DiMaggio was a great player, but that, that 96-9 was not a, you couldn't defend that on, on a serious way. Um, and most of the players, and there was a racial component, I suspected that as well, because of Henry Aaron and Willie Mays, but also there were a lot of guys who had a lot more home runs, right? Stan Musial, Ted Williams, who were white for that matter, Mickey Mantle, who were not considered there. So home runs seem to have this double-edged sword. You know, there's this kind of pseudo-thinking man's approach to baseball, which is, well, we don't want to be, you know, small ball, we don't want to be too reliant on the home run. You're down 2 nothing, and you don't hit that home run. You know, you can't get back in the game. So, you know, the Mets seem to be a little bit of, uh, in both, you know, you don't want to get too dependent, but... But the whole of baseball is going towards the home run. And has been and, for a while. And has been for a while, and, and people are accepting strikeouts as long as you get the home run at some stage. That seems to be the trade-off. Although home runs this year are up, but in general, I mean, the steroid era contributed to that too. But it also is, you know, this was, I think this was the first wave of the the sabermetric revolution in terms of how we think about baseball was that turns out the strikeout isn't the same as, you know, 
you're not going to move a runner over. It's not, it's not just another out. But that's certainly true, that that perception has changed. And, and players, you know, it used to be striking out 100 times a year was a problem. Absolutely. Now, 30 home runs 100 times a year, you'd probably take that. But, I mean, you know, if you don't have the players who hit the home runs, you, you, pay, the, you pay on that side, too. Do you think the Mets pitchers can, I mean, is this, is this Harvey, Syndergaard, DeGrom, Mets, is that ever going to happen? Is that a thing of, an idea of the past? Do you think they're going to they're ever be healthy or throw Zach Wheeler into the mix, too, at the same time again? Well, I think there's a reason why uh, Theo Epstein is going to go into the Hall of Fame as general manager and most other general managers aren't because he built with young players who were position players and not pitchers. That's a very good point. And so because the position players are much more likely to be healthy. And, and with pitchers, I mean, it's great to say, oh, look at all these guys, they're young, they're, they're healthy at the point. I mean, even the ones who are supposedly healthy on the mess, like Syndergaard has a bone spur. Gesellman is having surgery. So they're, they're all hurt. But that's actually typical of pitchers. I mean, look at, look at um, Strasburg. Right. You know, and, and, and it's an unnatural action, you know. I mean, it's a, it is really stressful on the body to keep doing that year after year. I'm not surprised. And, yeah. and how many of them have had Tommy John surgery? Uh, mm-hmm. uh, it's almost like no, I, have a younger, I have a younger son who's having an, who's a ninth grade pitcher who's having an MRI on Friday. Mm-hmm. He's not going to need Tommy John surgery, but he may need other kind of surgery. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I have to say, just coming out of the, watching my, son, my older son, who was he's in the middle of the recruiting process to play, mm-hmm. you know, put up Division three in, in college. Um, I'm not going to say where because I don't want to talk about a no-hitter in the eighth inning, but I think he'll land on his feet at a good school. I'm talking about academically speaking. Yeah. But the, what we see is that the pitcher who can throw you know, the high 90s is the fastest ticket to the big leagues. Mm-hmm. It's also the fastest ticket to a short career in the big leagues because so many of these guys, you can churn through them pretty quickly. But a two-year career throwing in the mid-90s in the big leagues, if you play your cards right, is, is a pretty good head start in life before you're in your 30s. And, and, and you're right, it isn't a natural act, and we pushed it to the limit. And I'm wondering, um, I, I went to that Bumgarner-Syndergaard game, and it was, mm-hmm. it was you know, I went with a guy who, I had two tickets. Um, my sons were furious at me, but it was a school night. And I, I got the tickets through a contact on the Giants, so I, I brought a friend who was a Yankee fan. He didn't want to bring a Mets fan, because we were sitting in the Giants, with some Giants folks. And I said, there's root for the Giants, you know. And <laughs> And he went the game, he said, that was one of the you know, best games I've ever seen. This guy's been going to baseball games since the mm-hmm. 50s, I've ever seen. Yeah. And, and a pitching duel. And a fantastic yeah. pitching duel. But two guys who really took a different approach to pitching. Mm-hmm. You know, Syndergaard, I, I don't know what the Mets fan, I mean, stop me if I'm wrong, but this seemed like watching an elite closer, but he did it as a starting pitcher. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was that level. He was throwing so hard and so effectively. And Bum was thinking, as a guy who got to go out there and get nine innings of shutout baseball, and went through the first three innings on 21 pitches. Mm-hmm. So it was a great pitcher's duel between two guys who, you know, if they stay healthy, are going to be great, great players, mm-hmm. great, great pitchers, but also really different approaches to pitching. I thought mm-hmm. that was very interesting, too. Mm-hmm. And maybe speaks to the difference in the Mets bullpen and the Giants bullpen, which we can get into later mm-hmm. in this talk if we want. Um, Roland, I want to follow up on some of this stuff, and, you know, feel free to jump in, John, on some of the stuff we, we talked about with regards to democracy. So we've talked about a climate in uh, the United States as our election approaches, and going back even to the beginning of this century, where we're not modeling uh, democracy as, as well as we might hope. And there's often, in my view, a bit of a disconnect here. I think that the folks out there talking about this may not be aware of how damaging this is, but you know, anybody with a phone in their pocket can see a YouTube clip of our electoral process and every phase of it, really, and every candidate in it. But there are other obstacles as well to the further expansion of democracy. What do you see as the major roadblocks as we kind of move into the, the next few years? Yeah. 
Yeah, well, I mean, the point you're making about um, the impact of American democracy on the rest of the world is about the power of emulation. You know, that others want to emulate a successful society and its successful system. And when that society doesn't look very successful anymore because of how ugly the politics have become, uh, uh, Francis Fukuyama calls it a vetocracy because nobody can get anything done but everybody has enough power to veto everybody else. Uh, um, that's not something that's you know, particularly appealing or emulatable uh, um, in, the, in the other parts of the world. But there's another problem as well, and that is, where are the success stories? Where are the success stories that we can point to as, you know, here's the path? There was a time when we could say, look at these great success stories, look at South Korea, look at Taiwan, you know, look at the Czech Republic or Estonia or places like that. Look at the fantastic progress they've made from authoritarianism to thriving democracy in half a generation. Um, now, there's still some stories like that, but we're not really seeing a lot of success stories, especially in Africa. Not many success stories there. Maybe Ghana is doing okay. Uh, um, but generally speaking, that's, the, that's another problem. And I think... Um, you know, people want instant results, and democracy does not deliver them. That's why are we having these success stories? I mean, what are, look, what's changed I, I think, since 20, 30 years ago? Yeah, the, the reason is that we've got to be more patient. The success will come, um, but it takes time, and we have to go through errors, and we have to learn from our errors. That goes society by society. I'm now, I'm not saying we have to go to the beginning. You know, I went. I was invited to a birthday party last year. Um, it's not every year you attend the 800th birthday of the Magna Carta. Uh, um, uh, but it doesn't have to take us 800 years to get to democracy. We don't have to repeat you know, everybody's you know, errors all the way through, but it will take time. And, and I don't think we're really giving democracy enough time to show its worth. Uh, Lincoln, you talked about um, seeing like people seeing these videos on YouTube and, and the, the horrible effects they can have. And what's happened in the last 20 or 30 years has also been the rise of the Internet, which was supposed to be a democratizing thing, people, citizen journalists and people participating and all that. But do you think that the rise of the Internet over this time has actually had some downside for democracy? Every innovation, every advance in technology has both good and bad. I think we can say that of everything. You know, the airplane's wonderful, but it drops bombs. Uh, um, you know, the internet, yes, it creates citizen journalists and it lets us communicate with people all over the world so easily. All that is great. But social media has also shown us that it gives a platform to the worst instincts. Um, and it allows people who used to be so marginalised because the controlled media, the, the official media, never gave them a platform, now have a platform. So I, I don't want to blame technology ever for these things. It always comes with positives and negatives. It reflects society. I wonder if it occurs to me that, and maybe you could speak to this a little bit, that the world, compared to 20 years ago, a major change, it's a much more multipolar world. And this means two things. One, it means that non-democratic regimes can model a different kind of regime. Now, I don't think there's too many ordinary people out there saying, gee, what we need is the kind of freedom they have in Russia, right? Because there is no real freedom in Russia. But there are authoritarian leaders who says, eh, that guy Putin is onto something, right? Absolutely. And there's, so there's the modeling, there's also the resources and the support. 
if you take that assistance from, say, China or Russia, you don't get the pressure to be a Democrat quite as much, as long as you're playing the game they want to with regards to foreign policy. So, so it seems like the rise of the multipolar world and of non-democratic powers has changed it as well. Is that something you've encountered? You know, Lincoln, I think you, you actually hit the nail on the head. Um, uh, Russia, to a certain extent, China much more so, um, is an impressive model. They are impressive models for governments, not for people. Right. They're impressive models for governments. So um, governments who have pesky civil society critics and, uh, you know, in their own country see what Putin has done to his civil society and say, there's my model for dealing with that, that sort of an issue. And, and uh, um, governments also look at China because the thing they get out of China is that the government is the central player. And governments like that idea in, in countries around the world. So governments absolutely will try to draw from the Chinese and Russian models, but I don't think people do. And, and you know, here's a, just a very simple example of that. There's not a single Chinese or Russian global brand. Not a single one. They're not emulatable in that sense. Uh, uh, nobody really, you know, particularly admires uh, uh, Chinese, you know, society uh, or Russian society uh, the way they admire the open societies of Europe and, and, and America. And that still speaks to a, a soft power in the United States that yes. maybe we're not, isn't being, it was a use and use. We're squandering the soft power. We're squandering the soft power. And of course it has soft power, but we're squandering it through the vitocracy, through really poor designs of governance, you know, uh, that things that could be fixed. I mean, you know, the, the electoral system, um, which has become so politicized because, I mean, this is so anti-democratic, but one side of politics in America has decided the way to power is to stop people voting. Right. And this is, and this is something that is, it's not unique to the United States, um, it is a problem for democracy when it occurs. I just want to raise a couple points about just on soft power. Russia has soft power in ways that we don't always aware of in the West. Right? There are a lot of a lot of parts of the world where Russia is Russian language is the lingua franca between different ethnic groups in countries within the former Soviet Union. So all generation. Well, but but also non. So for example, if you are an Armenian or an Azerbaijani in Georgia, for example, you're likely. You're more likely to speak Russian than Georgian in many cases. I'm sure, older, but sure. and the Russian media therefore is more powerful in the, the ways. The former that, Soviet Empire, definitely. Yeah, yeah, and 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 the efforts of both. I mean, when you turn on when it, in many hotel rooms now around the world, I assume outside the United States, when you turn on the media, you get RT and the Chinese television yeah. in English. It's right? free. So this is, yeah, and it's not it's not what I would call great journalism, but it's out there at least. You know, so the soft power is a little yeah. more comfortable. Yeah, I look. Here's the thing with soft power. It's not something that governments can actually manufacture or create. Right. Yes, you can spend a bit more money on, you know, the the, uh, uh, um, the Goethe Institute or something like that, but that really doesn't translate uh, uh, directly into soft power. Soft power is that you have a society that people admire. Right. It's like being cool. If you have to talk about it, yeah. you're not really, <laughs> don't really have it. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a tough thing. <laughs> it's true. True enough. Um. So I, we're going back and forth a little bit, but I want to I want to ask a broader. This started out as a Mets question, but it's now it's a kind of, I want to ask a bigger picture baseball question, which we can all have some thoughts on. Which is, so the game that Mets Giants game we talked about, Terry Collins 
brings the closer in for the ninth inning, things don't go the way the Mets wanted them. Uh, coming in to face a switch hitter and then three lefties in a row. There was some question among the giant people from San Francisco with them I was sitting, why doesn't he bring in a lefty? Uh, yesterday, or two nights ago, the Giants bullpen for the 138th or maybe 730,000th time of the year melted down, this time in the postseason. The result is that the even year run is over for the Giants. And there's, you know, they had a Matt Moore who was a very talented young pitcher, not for nothing, a year or so removed from Tommy John surgery, at 120 pitches, who they needed not just for the next couple rounds, but also for the next few years, he's under contract, took him out after 120 pitches, and the bullpen couldn't hold a three-run lead. Now, the difference is that Terry Collins, I think, is a respected, solid manager. Bruce Bochy is going to the Hall of Fame. These are not first-year guys. These aren't guys who've, been to the, who've never been to the big dance before. I didn't see the questioning of Collins's use here in the New York media. The San Francisco media is very much questioning Bochy's handling of the bullpen, which they never did in 2010, 12, and 14 for, for obvious reasons. But rather than discuss how should Bochy have handled that ninth inning or how should Collins have handled that ninth inning, I want to talk about how, you know, how we talk about questions, how we talk about second-guessing managers. Mm. On the one hand, it's fun, right? And, and baseball, if it's not fun, there's no intrinsic deep value to it. I mean, I might say there is, but I don't think there's a broad consensus on that. Um, but on the other hand, they have information that we can never have, but sometimes saying, hey, we have information that you don't have is a way, it's, it's, it's kind of an authoritarian gesture, it's not a democratic one, and it's not always an accurate one. So what's the role of second-guessing, and how do, we, how do we talk about something like that uh, in a way that is respectful of the managers, the situation that they've been, reality, they do have more information, but also that they're not always right, and sometimes they have other motives. Well, I think with um, that situation in particular, it's always safer in terms of <laughs> well, the aftermath if you go by the book. And, and Terry Collins, I think, with the Mets, he has a reputation of being a manager who maybe isn't the most creative manager. He seems to be a good manager in terms of motivating his players and people, they're, they're, they're trying hard, people like being on the Mets. But as far as being a creative manager, he doesn't seem to have that reputation. There's some talk of, well, he's had several for, you know, bench coaches, and maybe like he does better when there's a bench coach there who really can help him with the strategy. So I think I as a... Didn't see a lot of double steals. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> didn't see a lot of <laughs> Yeah, so, so when, you, when it... So I think for most Met fans, if you have a closer who, who for the most part this year, I mean, he hasn't been a great closer, but he's certainly been a good closer. He led the major leagues in saves. He, he had 52 saves in a row. And, and even though, I mean, sabermetrics would say, well, yes, but. There are plenty of yes, buts with Familia. But, but there's really no question, I think, for most Met fans that you would, you would want to go with your closer, unlike what Buck Showalter, who does have a reputation of being a very creative manager, when he didn't go with Zach Britton, when he, the previous night, when he, he kept saving him and then ended up not using him when, when they lost. You know, it's also worth noting with regards to that particular game, it was a home game for the Mets, right? Mm-hmm. And this means that there's never going to be a safe situation. Once you get to right. the ninth inning tie, it's mathematically it's not a possibility, because if you go ahead, you win the game. Right. So you, to hold him for the save made made no sense because right. it wasn't necessarily going to come around. Well, I have to say that I, I did I did read a couple of things someone said, well, yeah, he doesn't do too well in non-safe situations. Like, if you don't if you consider this a non a non-stressful situation when the entire season is on the line, then then I give up. Well, I, I would agree with that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can I just change sports for a minute because um, this issue arises in lots of sports and it was really crystallized in the last soccer world cup, football world cup. Um, and when um, uh, Louis van Gaal made a, a change 
So in in soccer, of course, you're only allowed three changes. So it's uh, you know they, they are they have more weight. Um, and um, the Netherlands was playing Costa Rica, and extra time was about to disappear, and they were coming up to penalties. Louis van Gaal had one change left. Who did he change? He took out his goalkeeper a minute or so before the end and put in a new goalkeeper. Now, Sillison, the goalkeeper he brought out, was an excellent goalkeeper. Cruel, uh, um, uh, the guy he put in, also a very good goalkeeper. But, but Van Gaal, I think, had this idea that it would pay havoc with the penalty takers on the other side. That they saw, oh, a specialist right. penalty saver is coming in, you know, more pressure on me and so forth. When, when they asked Louis Van Gaal at the end of the game, you know, about this brilliant thing that he'd done, he said something that I thought was terrific. He said, it's brilliant because it worked. We won. If it hadn't worked, you'd all be criticising me now for being a fool. And, right, and I think you know. In, ultimately, you've got to go to the statistics uh, uh, with the mm -hmm. with the managers. You know, uh, are they successful? If they're successful, whether they're conservative or, or imaginative, that's the key right. uh, uh, to it. And uh, Mets have been pretty successful mm -hmm. last couple of years. Yeah, for for that ninth inning, actually, the, the strategic move that interested me the most, or the, which actually is not a move, but the, the possible move was that that I think Mets fans are almost more, many Mets fans are almost more upset about Joe Panic walking than Gillespie getting the hit, because if Joe Panic had not walked, then Bochy was going to be faced with the decision as to whether or not to pinch hit for Bumble. Well, that's, that's absolutely right, because, because Panic, first of all, Panic looked like a little leaguer against Noah Syndergaard, mm -hmm. the first few at-bats of that game. Right, he's somebody who never strikes out, Ronnie. No, and, and, and Syndergaard, yes. Syndergaard dominated him, yeah. and dominated the oxymoron, Angel Pagan, as well, right? Mm -hmm. What what's what I wondered was and because because like I said, Syndergaard seemed to have closer stuff in that first seven innings. Mm -hmm. He was really throwing well, and they, the Giants just seemed happy to be facing anybody. You could have reincarnated Walter Johnson, brought him <laughs> right. out for the ninth inning. They yes. would have been happy for the change. So yeah. so it was a little bit of that. But but Jared Parker had come out on deck to face Bum. Right. I mean, it's a pitch to hit for Bum. Mm -hmm. So that would have, and if he manages to get him with two outs, Bochy had committed himself. And you mentioned that uh, Terry Collins tends to play it by the book. Bochy had no book. Mm -hmm. The Giants' bullpen has no book. Mm -hmm. If they had gone, let's say that that goes 10 innings, and they score in the top of the 10th, they pinch it for bomb, someone gets through the ninth. you know, four pitchers get three outs in the ninth. Mm -hmm. You know who his closer was? Johnny Cueto. Mm -hmm. I mean, he had no, he just had nothing, nothing to play with right. in, in that game. Although Johnny Cueto did wipe out the Mets in the, in the World Series last year. And so he also was, did yeah. pretty good against the Cubs in game <laughs> yeah. one. And, and, you know, managing in these must-win games is different from managing during right. the season. Uh, um, you can start thinking that you know there is no tomorrow, uh, and you've got to manage as if there's no tomorrow. Mm -hmm. It's a different thing, you know. You burn through your closers and pitches and, and so forth. And we know manager we haven't talked about, but who is taking his team to the uh, ALCS is Francona in Cleveland, mm -hmm. and his use of he brought Andrew Miller to the fifth inning, and he was a pretty darn good relief pitcher, closer, quality pitcher, and he that turned out to work very well. So is it, you know, it's it's, it's it's about and, the results. And, and Miller can pitch innings. He's right. not just a... He's not a one-inning guy. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. And, and we see this, you know, uh, Mariano Rivera, who was closed for many years with the Yankees, you know, towards the end of his run in 2009, he became his own set of man in the World Series and playoffs because the Yankees just didn't have that bridge that uh, the bridge to Rivera, which was discussed in the Bronx where, you know, a generation had fallen by then and they had yeah. to do it do it himself. But... but doing, doing a four-out close. Right, the four or the five-out save, yeah. you know, when, when, when necessary. And again, this is all, 
I, the, the bigger picture question I wonder, especially when we look at kind of Showalter, Bochi, and Francona, who are all respected managers, mm -hmm. uh, I wonder whether this closer paradigm, which really came in with Dennis Eckersley, right, and LaRusso's use, he was the first absolute only ninth inning guy. I think one year mm -hmm. he only warmed up six times when he didn't come in or something. I wonder if we're seeing a change in that. I remember we were, uh, when I was growing up, I mean, there would be like the, 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 the term the fireman, the fireman of the year. Right. They don't say fireman anymore right. because they don't come in to put out fires. Right, they, they come, come in to get those three outs. Right. And, um, and, and yes, I mean, I, th I think that, that... And even the save statistic is relatively new, isn't it? Uh, um, it's been around for about 40 years, oh, which is newer. It's newer than... Yeah. It, right. But be, and before that, I mean, if, when they retrofit, it's like, well, so-and-so led the league with 10 saves or right. something. I mean, it just yeah. wasn't the same thing yeah. as... You know, and people used to get relief wins because you would come in with a tie score. Right. Or even down by one to hold the team close. Right. I, I thought we should, you should ask Goose Gossager if he thinks about all of this. Well, Goose Gossager... <laughs> <laughs> He's one of their cur more curmudgeonly. Yes. Uh, Three innings. <laughs> right, but, but there is something to yeah. that, right? Yes, and, absolutely. And, and this is also when you, you spoke about, you know, one of the, the, the trends is when you carry 12 pitchers, mm -hmm. particularly for, 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 and sometimes 13, mm -hmm. you have no bench. Right. right? So, so, so well, one of the reasons that I was thinking Collins would bring a lefty is who were the Giants going to bring in from the right side? Gorky's Hernandez and Trevor Brown? I mean, that's who was on the Kelby Tomlinson. There was no, nobody on that bench who was, now this is a weaker than average playoff team, right? Mm -hmm. The Cubs have a much deeper bench than the Giants do. An American League team will always have somebody out on who can hit. But it was, it was, it was a striking uh, dilemma there. So I want to talk about, while we're on the kind of question of, of baseball, because we were chatting about this before we started recording. Where, do you, do you think that the, that the way we consume media, right? I mean, I, I wrote a piece this week called Donald Trump and the Clickbait Election. Mm -hmm. And my argument on this, I, I mean, the, the argument I made in this piece, was, this is obviously on domestic politics, was that one of the reasons Donald Trump is still in this race is that we can't read an article, an word article on a tax plan without clicking on 22 stupid things people have done on a first date. And, you know, there's a sale at Petco on dog treats. And, oh, someone just likes, wants to connect me on LinkedIn, right? And that's the way, and I don't mean this as like a curmudgeonly old man because I'm probably as guilty of this as the next person, but that's how the culture works now, and we have to uh, adapt to that in, in all of our, our thinking. And in fact, Donald Trump has very skillfully exploited this because there was a, used to be a political maxim, when you're in a hole, the first thing you do is start digging, right? Stop digging, right? Mm -hmm. The Trump maxim is when you're in a hole, jump out and start immediately digging and, deeper. And spell the mm -hmm. name right. That's right. all that matters. Right. Yeah. right, and now it's, you know... If there's a problem, just get out and make a worse one. You know, Donald Trump yeah. found a way to get his taxes out of, out of the news, right? Mm -hmm. that, that's extraordinary in a very depressing way. Yeah. <laughs> um, he's also, he would rather be talking about his taxes. I don't right know, now. because he'll find a way to get. <laughs> he's also found a way to get WikiLeaks out of the news, which right, is. Right, exactly. His, or the his, fact that he's a Russian student. So there's a yeah. lot going yeah. on here. But I'm wondering how does this affect baseball, which is a game that requires. You know, I, I'm struck how when I was. How, how baseball became an important part of the American culture, not the gestalt, not just the national, in a real deeper way, at a time when people consumed information largely through radio and the printed word. And that played to baseball's strategic advantage over other sports. Mm -hmm. That's changed now, right? I mean, my, my kids don't look at the box score. They look at the highlights, the video highlights of, of the, you know, the, the yeah. Blue Jay Indians ALCS right. or something like that, mm -hmm. right? They're not looking at, at the box score. And... And baseball is a game where, you know, it's, you have to go deep to understand it and to appreciate it. So I'm wondering, how does this, 
What's the future for this? Because you had talked about it beforehand, Rollins. Well, yeah, and, and, and um, I mean, we can look at it from the media perspective, but I always like to look at it from the people perspective because they will use the media whichever way. Um, and and uh, what you know, I'm seeing um, is that people's patience, attention span, capacity to sit for four hours and look at one thing is diminishing, greatly diminishing. Um, we're seeing it in all forms of consumption. Uh, um, and um, it's not clear that, that baseball is going to have the hold on the next generations that it's had before. Um, it's true, it's, a, it's very much one of the wonderful things about baseball, it's very much a father to son thing, uh, um, which, you know, does cement that sort of a hold because it becomes a family type, you know, process. And, and it's wonderful to see when you, when you go to the game or you watch them on TV, how many children come out? How many children go to the football in America? I mean, come on, I you wouldn't that. dare take a child to the football. <laughs> Uh, um, but, you know, you see the children at the baseball. But I so couldn't take my kids to that game because it started at 830 at night. And my two kids might be the biggest yeah, Nancy yeah, fans yeah. in New York. But I say that without exaggeration. And, mm-hmm. and there are not a lot of afternoon games. Right. Uh, certainly not the postseason. Yeah, yeah, not. yeah right. that's right. Well, you know, so is can baseball adapt to this sort of a situation? I think the baseball administrators thought the way to adapt is to try to get the game shorter. And, and to get them, you know, less than three hours, if possible, they have not succeeded. Sometimes they're short, but actually whenever they're important or whenever the rivals are, have a real rivalry, they get very long. And also one of the reasons they're long is that the game is played differently, right? If, if there was the, I don't know if you, any of you saw this, but a few years ago, the Game 7 of the 1960 World Series was rebroadcast. Did you happen to catch that? I, I, I did not, but okay. I, I heard some of it was like famous, two hours long or something. Right, and, and yeah. famous yeah. Pirates, yeah. Uh, Yankees, Game 7 yeah. World Series won by a walk-off home run by Bill Mazeroski, but the reason it's shorter is guys run up there and swing at the first pitch every time. Mm-hmm. And, and there aren't five pick-off attempts, you know, before they throw But there's just fewer pitch pitches, and, too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I, but and that was a 10-9 game. That was, that was a high-scoring game. game. Yeah. Right, right. So, you know, I, I, I don't know. Can they, can they change baseball? Um, you, you know, people in baseball don't realize sometimes that some fundamental changes have occurred in baseball. Um, as an outsider to it, I sort of noticed it because one of the things that baseball had that cricket, which I grew up on, did not have, was that baseball used to be a contact sport, which, of course, in cricket there's absolutely no contact allowed. But baseball, you know, the catcher used to protect the, the plate and the guy hurtling in from third base had to go through the catch. That's gone. It's the Buster Posey rule. The Buster Posey rule. And I think gone with it is the, the ugly slide into second base to break up the double play. I'm not seeing that either. Well, they change it after this year. Yeah. Because of a chase up. So, so mm-hmm. you know, basically, baseball has changed. It's no longer a contact sport the way it used to be. And that's a big change in, in it. Can other things be changed? It's not clear. Going back to cricket, cricket um, is not a speedy game like baseball. It takes five days to play a game of cricket, uh, uh, the traditional uh, sport. So, you know, five days, that doesn't fit the modern uh, situation. So they kept the five-day game, but they invented new forms of cricket, including one that lasts four hours. And that it's called the Big Bash, because you've got to bash at every ball. That's where the kids are going, to the Big Bash. Um, so I'm, I'm asking myself, can baseball evolve in some way that makes it more um, uh, attractive? Uh, um, maybe something fundamental 
be any two strikes. Well, Charlie O'Finley proposed that a move, you know, four balls, three strikes, changed to three. This was in the early seventies, maybe in the late sixties, changed to three balls and two strikes for exactly that that reason. You know, to, to speed up the game. Yeah, yeah. Some people talk about seven inning games also, but but I I feel like considering that we grew up with when games took two to two and a half hours. That that what is the, that things have changed. I think I think we need to try to change them back. I understand commercials are not going away, but you have something where like like if I'm watching a game, if I've taped a game and I'm watching it, and the pitcher is coming out to the mound, or they're going to change pitchers. I mean, I'm fast forwarding yeah. through that. I'm tired of there's it. There's another there's another aspect of this as well, which is that not only are the games long, but there's so many of them. So so in the you know um, when when you start. We're in playoff. This is playoff time now. We're not, mm-hmm. We talked a little bit about the playoffs. We're in the middle of the playoff season. In the old days, I mean, I say that if your team, if you're a Blue Jay fan now, mm-hmm. right, or an Indian fan, or one of the five teams that's still standing, at this recording, the game five of the National Dodger series has not yet been played. So we don't know who's going to win that game. So we're saying five teams are still standing. If you're a t- fan of one of those five teams, you're looking at October. This is like having a part time job. Mm-hmm. You've got four hours, it could be 15, 16 games. Um, now, the, one of the reasons for that is that it does bring revenue in, but I, if you watch the highlight of the Dodger National game, the last game four, which was the game Kershaw pitched on short rest, the Dodgers managed to win that game, there's empty seats there. And my friends in L.A., my baseball fan friends, were saying, $6 for tickets, $6 for a playoff game, where Clayton Kershaw, who is, you know, the best pitcher of his generation, is pitching. I, I, that, that seems to me that that speaks a lot about some of the problems um, that are out there, but because there are so many games. A friend of mine, after the one-game playoffs in, the, in both leagues, the playing game, said they should make all the series one game. Now, they shouldn't. No. But they could make the first round one game because it's because the commitment to watch so many, so many games and also the season, right, 162 games. If, yeah, if you play... If the team wins 100 games in a mm-hmm. season... You can't knock it out in one game, you know. You've got to reward no. that team yeah. with something. Like, I agree. Yeah. I agree. I'm not saying you should, but I'm right. saying it is something. It is a way to think about it because there's so many games. Right. But the flip side of that is, as as a Met fan, who this is the first time that my team has been in competition, much less getting into that wild card game. And and I've always thought when I first heard about the wild card game, I said this is a really great idea. It's so exciting. And then when my team was in it, I'm thinking like, oh wait a minute, it's really exciting as long as you don't have to face Madison Bumgarner, <laughs> maybe the best postseason pitcher ever. <laughs> but but I still think it's I, I still think it's a good idea. But I would almost it's it's a great idea because so many teams are in it until the last week of the right. season. Well, you know why else it's a good idea is because exactly what you said. The Chicago Cubs this year, mm-hmm. uh, they wire to wire were the best team in baseball. I, I don't I don't think that's, they right. may not yeah. win the World Series on right. predictions, yeah. but wire to wire they were the right. best team in baseball. Right. They, the Dodgers, the Nationals, they get a break. Winning the division means something if the one... It used to be just a wild card and suddenly you're on equal footing. You don't have a home yeah, field yeah, advantage. Yeah. So this way, you really fight to win that division. Yeah, right. There's a, there's a real reward to it. Yeah. So that that makes sense. But even if you shorten the second series to a two out of three... I mean, I, I, and I don't know that, that, that less baseball is the answer to the problem, right? But well, if you want less, less baseball, then I, look at the 162 I, games in the season. That's mm-hmm. what you'd want to And Rob at. Manfred has said, we, you know, we'd explore going back to 154, yeah. which might... That, that it's not the, the postseason is not the problem. Look, look at the regular season. Yeah. I was like this year had a disadvantage in that there were no actual pennant races. The races no, were all for the wild card. Right. The divisions were all decided early. And so I think 
I mean, when I hear about, and, and certainly I'm a football fan too, and this is in the, like the story of the NFL, it's like all these teams are fighting at the end of the playoffs and like, you know, none of them will do well right. once they're there. And, and that's the thing with the, with the Mets. I mean, I, the Mets were very clearly not one of the best teams in the National League this year. Well, this, so I can't, I mean, I'm happy they got to the playoffs and, I'm, and, and they faced Bumgarner. And considering what could have happened in that game, I think they actually did pretty well. Well, well but, but let me ask you then, as a fan of the team that got knocked out the wild card, right. and, and I might speak as a fan of the team that won the wild card, got knocked out the next round. Right. What's the takeaway from the season? This is what interests me about the expanded. One of the things that interests me about the expanded wild card. If the Mets are in the Cardinal situation, where mm-hmm. they just barely missed the second wild card, or the Giants were in that situation, yeah. you as a fan might be saying, "Well, we got a lot of problems, right?" Instead, you're thinking, "We just tinker, right?" I mean, for example, I think if the Giants had Goose Gossage mm-hmm. in that bullpen, they right. still wouldn't be the best team in baseball mm-hmm. because their outfield is terrible, yeah. right? So, so sometimes making the playoffs makes you think you're actually better than you were, and you don't really address the fundamental problems. Right, I mean, I'm, I'm a Bruce. There are different like another sport. Like in football, I'm a Jets fan, and last year the Jets won ten games, and almost made the playoffs. Oh, the Jets are a really good team. Well, I think this year we see how good the Jets right. are, which is not very good. I, th- I think with the Mets, I would say that that I'm still optimistic and hopeful with the Mets, but but this is a team that they had troubles. Lo- they they had problems last year after getting to the World Series. So I, I I'm not going to pretend that they're that they're a juggernaut. And it's, and as I said before, if they lose Cespedes, then they're in, in real trouble. But I think with the wild card, I mean, I mean from what I've, like like the Pitts, Pittsburgh, from what I've heard, they were a team that was terrible for so long. The fans were were really you know starving for a winner. They they finally got into the playoffs. And and then they, I think they had a couple of years in a row where they they, had, they were going up against Jake Arrieta, um, maybe Wayne Wainwright one year. And so what happened with the Pirate fans? They, had the, they, had mom, they went up against Matt Bum. Oh, Bum, okay, Matt Bum, right. So what what happened with the Pirates is, I mean, I mean, like if and this could happen with the Mets. I mean, let's say next year the Mets uh, once again get to that one game playoff and they go up against Bumgarner or the equivalent of that, and then they lose again. Then you think, well, this really is <laughs> kind, of, kind of a letdown. Except it's a lot of money for the team. They sell at the ballpark. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, I, I yeah. you sell at the ballpark, and they have a whole range of, I mean, they were really, I, I'm into a lot of Mets games at this new ballpark as well as the Shea Stadium over the years, obviously mm-hmm. a lot of Yankee games. Yeah. And I've met a lot of games in a lot of different ballparks. I've never seen a team, a ballpark, so aggressively market their merchandise as the Mets did in that game mm-hmm. for the exact reason that there might just be one postseason yeah, game there. Right. So you want to get your Mets postseason 2016 hat and T-shirt. And, and it does generate a fair amount of money for the team. So there's that sense yeah. incentive we sometimes overlook yeah. from the outside. I would also point out that from a Mets fan point of view, like, like that, the, that you talk about like the division meaning something. I mean, the division was pretty clearly won by the Nationals months ago. Right. And the Mets fans, I mean, that's, that's the way it is. But going into next year, obviously, Mets fans will hope that it's going to be closer. But they're still in the back of our minds. It's like, well, why did the Nationals do so much better? What was the difference between the Nationals and the Mets this year from last year? Murphy. Da- Daniel Murphy. Yeah, yeah that's which is certainly yes. a big part of it. And and even though you can do hindsight, I mean, I mean, I think most fans, I mean, even the Nationals didn't want Murphy. They tried to trade for Brandon Phillips first. So so you can do a lot of hindsight that the Mets should have yeah. kept him, and they should have. But but as it turned out, that's a real... He's, that's, that's, he's, that's really he's batting compensate for his poor fielding, yes. Yeah. Do, uh, do you know what the difference is between the Dodgers this year and the Dodgers last year? What? Dave Roberts. Really? I'm, I'm, I know that there are people who will listen to this podcast that will get angry at me personally yes. for saying nice things about well, the, the Dodgers. Fans. Yes. Yeah, the Giants fans. <laughs> but, but I'm going to say this. Dave Roberts should be manager of the year. That team, all the problems they had, the way Yasio Puig is a factor again after being, you know, what he had to go through, and the difference between putting up Don Mattingly in the postseason at the helm against, as opposed to Dave Roberts, is night and day. So, mm-hmm. so if the Dodgers beat Washington, we don't know what's going to happen in that game. If they go further, 
just watch Dave Roberts. He's done an absolutely fantastic job there with the Dodgers. And that's one of the reasons Giants finished second, that and the fact that they, they played like a triple-A team. Was yeah. the you know, the numbers show with um, the Mets how when, when Cespedes is in the lineup, they're like 10 games over 500. When he's not in the lineup, they're, they're, they're not a, a good team. And when Kershaw got hurt... They, they say, well, the Dodgers are, like, like they win most of the game, almost every game Kershaw pitches. And then when, when Kershaw's not at the lineup, they, they, they're a losing team. So once Kershaw got hurt, the Dodgers were finished, and instead the Dodgers ended up having a better record. Right, they got so, better. So, yeah. And, and talking about a team we haven't mentioned much, the Yankees, uh, um, they behaved like a losing team. They sold their slugger and, and sold their two closers. Right. Uh, um, and then they became a better team for it. Incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, bringing in the, the, the younger uh, players. And... You know, that has to be the formula. That has to be the formula, is finding those young players. One of the things that the Yankees did that was terrific, they refused to sell the young players in their farm systems. Although a lot of teams were interested in Sanchez and Bird and others, the Yankees said, no, that's what we're going to keep. That's our future. And that's right. You know, and and the Mets, for me, the iconic image from, was it last year? Was when... They tried to sell Wilma Flores, mm. and he cried. Yes. Yeah. What a wonderful image for baseball that right. was, because normally baseball, it's mercenaries, mm-hmm. they play for whoever, they don't live in that town, right. they live in a hotel, they live somewhere else, they don't care about that team. Here's a kid who did not want to leave the Mets. Well, and, and I was, this is what I said before about how people actually want to be on the Mets this year compared to previous years. I mean, in the past, they'd be crying if they were traded to them. T.J. <laughs> Rivera yeah. grew up, the second baseman, mm-hmm. grew up playing in the Frog's Neck Little League in the Bronx. Well, so there's another you know great local local story there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but chances is also local, right? Yeah, it's from yeah. northern Manhattan. Yeah, I'm going to hit you guys with a question, okay? Yes. I have this little theory <clears throat> that it only came to me because of very recent events. So let's look at the last two presidential election campaigns. Um, we all remember the Romney 47 percent tape. Who took that tape? Uh, a disaffected guy called Scott Prouty. Right, who was angry about? He was a bartender. Uh, it was, he was uh, he was working for the contractor. Kira. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, um, and and he was angry about labor conditions in China, etc. You know why it all happened is not the point. Who did he give the tape to? He tried to give it to Rachel Maddow, but for some reason that didn't work. He gave it to James Carter the third, and James Carter the third from Mother Jones mm-hmm. publicized it, and it really. Either it cost Romney the elections or pretty close to it. Um, so here is Jimmy Carter's grandson causing the loss of the election of the Republican nominee. Now let's put the, the clock forward four years and we have this outrageous tape uh, uh, from, uh, the, uh, from Access Hollywood of Trump. Uh, uh, um, and I don't even want to discuss it, it's so horrible. But who is the muse? Mm-hmm. Who is the wretched little man who gets Trump to say all these things? Mm-hmm. Billy, Billy Bush, Bush mm-hmm. Jeb Bush's cousin. Okay? So if we, it's only two cases, I know, mm-hmm. but I'm still going to call it a little theory that I'm giving a name to. Mm-hmm. And the name I'm giving to this theory is, it's got ten syllables, be careful now, I'm an academic, serendipitous synchronicity. Serendipitous synchronicity. And it has sort of notions of revenge and schadenfreude and yin-yang and the world back in balance and so forth. And it occurred to me there must be serendipitous synchronicity in baseball. You know, Ken Griffey Jr. hitting a home run off the closer 
that struck out his old man to win a World right. Series, you know, things like that. There has to be, because baseball's so old and it's such a family game that there must be examples of serendipitous synchronicity in baseball. Where are they? Well, the Ken Griffey Jr. one that comes to mind right off the bat since you brought him up is Ken Griffey Jr., when he played, was a bit of a Yankee killer. And when he was a... I'm going to make this a... I'm going to go into this because this is a great example, I think. Was he a bit of a Yankee killer? His father, Ken Griffey Sr., played for the Yankees. George Steinbrenner told his father to keep his kid out of the clubhouse. Okay, now, across the country a few years earlier, there's a guy named Bobby Bond, who was one of the great, great players. Uh, great player who never really had some substance abuse problems. He kind of bounced around a lot, but he was a good, great player. Um, for a long time, and the Giants, every, every uh, minor leaguer outfielder who had some potential they produced, was, this was in the early 60s, late 70s, was seen as, was described as the next Willie Mays, because, you know, that's not much of a burden to have to bear. Um, but Bobby Bonds was the closest. Bobby Bonds had a son who was invited, you know, who he would bring to the Giants clubhouse, and the Giants let him run around, hang out, play, do whatever he wanted. When he became a free agent, he signed with the Giants. And he became really probably the second greatest player in San Francisco Giants history. That, of course, is Barry Bonds. So that's the closest I can get to that theory for baseball. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure there are others. I'm sure there are others out there. But there's something about it, you know, there's some... Something about the fact that, um, you know, Jeb Bush gets his revenge right. in this very indirect <laughs> sort of a way. There's no intentionality here, you know. Right. It's just, it's the synchronicity of it, you know. That well, well I, I, Dave Winfield is another example who, Dave Winfield was uh, signed a $23 million contract, back when that was a lot of money, going into following the 1980 season with the Yankees. He signed the, you know, with the Padres, signed with the Yankees. <laughs> and had a very, he had some injuries towards the end, but basically was a solid player. He's now in the Hall of Fame. And he made the World Series once with the Yankees. Once. And he was one for 22. And they lost that World Series to the Dodgers. And, of course, the other famous slugger on that team was Reggie Jackson, who was in the last series with the Yankees. He went to the Angels the following year. Reggie was known as Mr. October for his exploits in the World Series, both with the A's and the Yankees. Winfield, the general manager, the owner of the Yankees, George Hammond, referred to as Mr. May because he played so badly in the World Series. But Winfield was, was a great player and, and by all measures a very good guy. If you ever hear him interviewed now, he seems like a very decent guy, very gifted athlete. He gets traded away from the Yankees, bounces around you know, towards the end of a Hall of Fame career, ends up getting the game-winning hit in the World Series for, I believe, the, I want to say the Blue Jays in 1992. Mm-hmm. And oh, right. 94. No, 94 oh, was a strike year. 93 okay. was a Joe Carter okay. year. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. So that would be another example of a guy who kind of, yeah. you know, went through a lot and then ended up, you know, yeah. landing on top or for that moment. Mm-hmm. So speaking of questions, you have both prepared some questions for each other, which I really like, so I want to give you some time to talk about those questions. So, um, Let's see. Uh, this is actually a, a variant on, on one of my questions, but it's like this refers to the Philippines president, um, Duterte, and he's calling Obama you know, son of a bitch and stuff, and, and I, I just like, well, I'm going um, Anyway, the, the, uh, Obama is somebody who I think seems to is very level-headed. I mean, I mean what, if, what if by chance there was a president of the United States who wasn't so level-headed? What, would, what, do, you, what do you think would happen then? Yeah, I mean, the president is important, um, but um, there's a whole administration as well, and 
you would hope that um, uh, in a whole administration, you know, level heads would somehow, you know, prevail in that. All bets are off if Trump becomes president in that regard. But in a normal presidency, the, the president, of course, is, you know, the most important person in that administration, but he's not the only person. And there would be lots of calm heads from the ambassador in Manila on saying, calm down, calm down, you know. Lots of people have been insulted by this guy. Let's not react. And we have interests in the Philippines, and those interests will continue even after Duterte is no longer president. Um, but uh, it's a real problem, this guy uh, um, in, in the Philippines. And um, uh, he's not the first to try to solve the drug problem by killing addicts. Um, and and um, I, I'm surprised that the international community has not stood up to it even more than it has, because it's completely unacceptable conduct. Um, what happens in these sort of situations is um, it's never the drug kingpins that are killed. Mm -hmm. It's always little guys that are killed, and then it's people against whom the police have a grudge that are the next to be killed, that have nothing to do with drugs. And, and you get this level of impunity in the end of law and order, and then the whole society uh, uh, suffers. But um, uh, Obama acted perfectly correctly mm -hmm. in, you know, not being goaded right. by this and not reacting in some way that, you know, would keep the story in the papers and all that. And Duterte looks like a fool, you know, in, in, in the in, in what he called him was worse than what you said. <laughs> <laughs> we are trying to keep up. Yeah. No. Family podcast. It is extraordinary that we cannot discuss domestic or international politics on the family podcast. <laughs> it really bad. tells you something about where we are in 2016. It's bad. Well, but you know, I think um, John, you know, you you raise a, a, a bigger issue about um, are we seeing an era where demagoguery is somehow becoming more widespread and more. Uh, acceptable in the electorate, uh, um, in not just in the Philippines, but in so many places around the world. Um, um, we, we're seeing a, a situation, and, and here's where the US is so important, because you know it's the leading democracy, and whether it likes it or not, it does set an example, and, mm -hmm. and you know that example will be followed. And, um, and, and we've got to be careful with our terms, a little bit with our terms here. Um, the point about demagoguery, in my mind, is that there is an element of deceit in it. You know, we're deceiving people as to what the true situation is, uh, um, either simplifying it or, or, or straight out, you know, uh, misrepresenting it. And, and one of the things that Trump has brought to American politics is a post-factual process. You know, uh, um, one... Error, in fact, can kill a candidate in the old days. Mm. Um, who was the Texas governor who couldn't remember the three departments? Rick Perry. Mm. Rick Perry, the three departments he wanted to close. That was it. A little thing like that ended his campaign. Even, right? in, the, even in this election, Gary Johnson not, not knowing that. What is a lepo? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, that's right. You know, but Trump somehow has uh, um, you know, been able to sidestep this and completely post-factual, and happily repeats lies. But I want to I want to just raise something here because there is this story that's out there, and I know we're now we're getting far afield from international affairs and of baseball, but that's okay. There is this story out there that says Trump has broken every rule of politics, and you know, 
and it just shows that everything is changing. Trump, if the election were held today, Hillary Clinton would get, I'm estimating, would beat him by 10 to 12 points and yeah. get about 360 electoral votes. Yeah. That would be the biggest landslide, I want to say since Reagan, although possibly George H.W. Bush did better against Dukakis in the Electoral College. I don't have that data mm -hmm. in front of me. So it didn't really work for him at the end. I mean, unless something dramatic happens, we're about a month out, exactly four weeks out from the election, no, a little less than four weeks out, it's Thursday today. Unless something dramatic happens, this didn't actually work for him. He didn't actually become president. He made it to the Republican primary, but he did, you know, a, this is Marco Rubio running a serious campaign. We have very different election outcome. Not, not necessarily Hillary would lose, but it would be a very different, absolutely. much closer race. No, absolutely. It, it didn't work for him. It did work for him because he was able to attract support, unstinting support, from a solid group of people. Yes. And that support stays with him regardless of what he does. Mm -hmm. He said it himself. He could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue, they would still support him. And it. he's basically gone out and proved it since he said that. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Yes. Mm -hmm. He shot himself in the foot mm -hmm. many <laughs> times. <laughs> right. And they still support him. Uh, um, Worse, so, but yes. So, you know, that, that is a, 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 an element that we have to look at. And, of course, what the reality of that is those people aren't going away on November mm -hmm. the 9th. Um, Hillary has to deal with that situation, mm -hmm. and it's going to be particularly difficult because um, Trump has taken things straight out of the authoritarian playbook by saying ahead of the time that the election is rigged, mm -hmm. that um, they're trying to stop him from becoming president and so forth, that you know, the Second Amendment issue, the talk that he, he's gone on with, all that sort of stuff, Hillary has to deal with that. Uh, um, and, you know, that is going to be a particularly difficult thing for her to deal with. How is she going to do it, do it? Through law and order? Right. Uh, um, appealing to these people? I mean, they despise her for irrational reasons, mm -hmm. but nevertheless, they despise her. Uh, um, and, and it's going to, you know, he has really poisoned American can politics I, I in that regard. And just to finish that point, the next demagogue, not the Marco Rubio, mm -hmm. not even Cruz, who frankly frightens me more than, than Trump, but the next demagogue will take it straight out of the Trump playbook mm -hmm. and decide that you say outrageous things, you get a lot of media attention, you appeal to a demographic, that'll get you through the primaries. And, you know, uh, um, that may be, for Trump, that's a, frankly, at the beginning of this whole process, if you said to Trump, you will be the losing Republican candidate, he said, that's a victory. I would think so. I My think brand so. is bigger now but, with mm -hmm. that. But let me, let me ask another question, um, because this is, this is, I think, has a lot to do with global. I, I know this from my work doing global, doing democracy work around the world. I like to think of issues, you know, any, pick any country you want, that are there issues within democracy where the parties, where that's the reason we have democracy. We are, parties are not going to agree, and citizens are not going to agree on the role the economy should play, in the government should play in the economy, right? That's why we have a Congress and a Parliament, and that's why we vote and to legislate. Or the relationship between regulating, environmental regulation versus maybe letting businesses do what they want. Again, that's something we should be discussing. Um, you know, all of those kind of things, what the criminal justice code should be. That, those are problems within democracy that parties do and should disagree on, and we should have elections, et cetera, et cetera. Then there are problems that if you want to look at the American context, right, we could say, again, the regulations, we could say taxes, we could say how we conduct the war, you know, efforts to, to stop terrorism, immigration would be one of those, refugee policy. Then there are problems of democracy. And problems of democracy, there, to me, there clearly is somebody that's outside of democracy. So should you be allowed to shoot up a polling place if you don't think the votes are going to go your way in that polling place? I think the answer there is a clear no. 
And if anyone does that, that's not a problem within democracy. That's a problem of democracy. Should you jail your opponent? You know, etc. Right? Mm -hmm. Trump has become a problem of democracy. Romney and Obama was a fight within democracy. Yeah. Now, if Cruz, who I'm not really a big fan of, um, had been the nominee, or Marco Rubio, it would have been a problem. Or, or the Sanders-Clinton fight was largely a fight within democracy. Yeah. What I'm wondering about is that we see so many people on the left who are going to, after this election, and the left broadly speaking, who have said, wow, wouldn't it be great to have Romney again? Right? He's not a threat. You know, it's, you know somebody, I think Joseph Weisberg late on his podcast, said Hillary Clinton's running for president and Donald Trump is running for dictator. Now, that's a kind of a fast way to put it, but he's not obviously wrong no, in his analysis. No. But does this actually reinvigorate and make us appreciate the value of an honest partisan disagreement, which is what, if you go back historically and look at, that's really what we had with McCain and Obama. We always had these people on the fringes, but they weren't on both sides, but more on the right, but they weren't yeah. empowering. They yeah. weren't empowered the way they Trump has empowered them and is empowered by them. But maybe we, we look at this, this, this uh, bullet we're going to dodge on November 8th because the likely scenario is that we will get this kind of centrist Democrat who is, you know, you can falter for me too much of a party establishment or too hawkish or whatever, but she's a politician yeah. and she's going to be a fine president. But, I mean, unless you're a Republican, we think she'll be a bad Democratic president, but at least she'll be, you know, she's not going to do anything, not going to destroy the country. Yeah. Do you no, think we, we, we now have an appreciation of that that might be able to get us back to a less partisan place? You know, this is this argument, you know, you stare into the abyss, and having stared into the abyss, you want to avoid jumping into it. You know, the, yes, okay, maybe that argument's going to work, but um, I don't see it in American politics because um, especially the extremes on the right are just too deeply uh, cemented into the American psyche. Uh, um, and um, I, I'm just not sure um, how you deal with that because... They will not accept anything but some form of total victory, which they can't even articulate. And which you're not going to get. What that total and victory they're not going to get. You know, they can't even articulate it. But it, it's a mix of, you know, get government completely out of my life, although well, a lot of the people take like their social security, their Medicare. Yeah, that's right. Uh, um, but, but they love that, that, you know, get government out of my life, you know, um, uh, issue. And, and there's a part of American politics which... The rest of the world, that is, of the advanced uh, uh, democratic world, has been completely spared. And that is, we in, in Europe, in Australia, in New Zealand, in Canada, God plays no role at all in politics. No role at all. And here, the religious right, frankly, is gaining um, more power, uh, um, losing credibility. Because how can a religious group support somebody like Trump? Right. Uh, uh, you know, strikes you as, as a complete oxymoron, you know, uh, uh, religious Trump. Especially I mean, when running against someone who is actually a religious yeah. Christian. Exactly. Who, but who doesn't, you know, display it very much. It's private. Uh, uh, it's a private case. thing, which is what, in, in the rest of the world, that's what religion is, a right. private thing. In most of the rest of the world. Not yes. something yeah. about, you know, the most democratic concept. Yes. Exactly. Um, so, I mean, I think, you know, um, really... The problem is, are we going to face a fundamentalist Christian issue in America that, that can't be resolved through, through normal uh, electoral politics? I think you're talking about 
it's just like people like Romney might look good in comparison to Trump, and they certainly do, but I think from, from a, for a lot of Democrats, I mean, I mean people are, have been saying, like, well, look at Mike Pence, he seems like a reasonable candidate when he's up there. And I think, I think for Democrats, at least, if you know a lot about Mike Pence, he, he's not going to come across as a reasonable... Yeah, Absolutely. exactly. And very religious, very religious right. Republican, yeah. uh, Mike Pence, yeah. mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. So. But, but, but my view on, I mean, or take Ted Cruz, because Ted Cruz actually ran for president, came mm-hmm. in second in the Republican nomination. Now, I'm, I'm kind of a secular Jew, so I, I would understand that my views on the role of religion mm-hmm. and, and some of them are going to be radically different than Ted Cruz's, mm-hmm. you know, on everything from LGBT uh, equality and LGBT marriage equality to abortion rights to prayer in school. We're going to have really strong differences. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then there's a battery of, I don't really believe in carpet bombing people because there are terrorists somewhere in their country. Mm-hmm. And I have a different vision for the economy than Ted Cruz. Mm-hmm. But my sense with Cruz, and again, I, I don't really know that super much about him. I could be wrong, is that he would, had he been the nominee, and we don't know, it's a, you know just like we don't know mm-hmm. what would happen if Terry Collins had run a lefty. We don't know, but had he been the nominee, he would have understood that this is a process and you win and you lose. But had, had he and, been the nominee, it would have been culture wars. We would have been fighting the culture wars. We, we have not, been fighting these. Look, well, George, we, we did nominate. more deeply than we are now. But, mm-hmm. but, but that, if we're doing that within democracy, to me that's better. Because, because yeah. I view Donald Trump, I mean, I, I was talking to somebody about this, the next Trump, and I said, but if the, on, on the issues, the next Trump could be intriguing. Because if you ran a candidate who was all over the place on taxes and the economy, because Trump is, but for a less American active role in the, in the um, rest of the world, for kind of a hands-off approach on social issues and, and, and strong anti-immigration, right? You took those four issues and put it in someone who's a rational person. You know, on balance, I'm not sure I'd vote for that person, but a lot of people would. I think that's a, that could actually contribute something to the political, you know, yeah, well, and, and, and somebody who is articulate, which is, of right, course, and, and, Trump and, is and not. Capable of connected thought, mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. But, but with, 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 with a Cruz type, those, those, if we're having those culture wars, and they're ugly, but within the democratic structures, that's what that that would yeah, speak to the strength of our institutions. That that does, but I think with somebody like Cruz, I mean, Cruz is also somebody who made his bones on on wanting to shut the government down, and yeah. and, and how democratic yeah. is that? It's well, it's not a coincidence that when he ran, not a single one of his Senate colleagues mm-hmm. supported him. They knew him. Yeah, yeah they, they, they knew not, him. They, they, they knew him. this was not the what what they wanted. As a he president. was not beloved by anyone he's encountered, absolutely other than perhaps his not. family. Absolutely. he's the only credibility he has is he fought Trump to the very end. That's right. his only right. piece of credibility. Mm-hmm. He did that for himself. Right. Yeah. But now he's lost that. And now he's lost that. He's lost that. In one of the worst cases of yeah. timing, there's some <laughs> serendipitous synchronicity in reverse. So I forget. Someone had a whose turn is it? Ask you. No, I think I was going to ask about. So. I saw a program on TV uh, um, about calling balls and strokes, mm-hmm. um, and basically um, the umpires do a great job. The umpires mm-hmm. do a great job, and they're mm-hmm. part of the tradition of baseball, but they get the calls wrong between five and ten percent of the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, and you know, I was thinking about it. I, I have a lot of sympathy for them because the strike zone the strike zone changes with every batter. Mm-hmm. That is a really hard thing for a human. To deal with, mm-hmm. you know, a minute ago it was there, and now uh, uh, two minutes later it's two inches higher up the strike zone, and they've got to call it for that strike zone. That is something very difficult for humans to do. That's where they make their errors. The constantly changing strike zone. That's where a machine 
has an advantage over a human. And um, we could call balls and strikes from the camera and put it straight into the umpire's ear. So it would look the same. The game would look the same. Mm -hmm. But it would be different in that all the calls would be right. Can we change baseball that way? I have to speak as a baseball traditionalist and, and say that I think that's a good idea and I don't want it at the same time. And and the reason is like I'm I'm a National League fan and I and I I was I became a fan before the advent of the DH and so I still look at all that DH and even though that's very accepted at this like point. Like Seinfeld, he's with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not a fan of DH. And, and um, although I like the American League. So so I mean, we were talking before like would would they pinch hit for Bumgarner? I mean, those obviously those decisions like that aren't there anymore. And and um, and with the balls and strikes, I mean, it is so much part of baseball. Different umpires, different strike zones. And I think the players. I mean, I mean the smart pitcher knows. Well, this pitcher is going. This umpire is going to have this kind of strike zone. The the, the batters will. Will know that as well, and um, I was I was uh, I, I went to, I'm not a big tennis fan, but I had a chance to go to the U.S. Open recently, and I hadn't been there in a very long time. So this has probably been happening for longer than I realized. Yeah. But but I'm watching the game, and 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 after a lot of different points, they would they would they would show. The uh, they would show the graphic yeah. on, on the screen, like oh well that ball was in, that ball was out, and and I thought well this is I mean I think it, this is apples and oranges. I mean tennis they really should be able to say like by a machine is the ball in or out. However, it just seemed very clinical, and when I and when no I think more about back and rows, no, yeah, no more back and rows, no more back and rows, and and, it, and, it, and and actually just seeing that 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 clinical image up on the screen made me want those umpires to stick yeah. around. And and we did the same in baseball in yeah. cricket. Mm-hmm. We have one rule that's very difficult for the umpire. I know it all sounds weird to you guys, called leg before wicket, right? Mm-hmm. The bowler is supposed to hit the wicket, the three sticks. If you stand in front of it mm-hmm. and the ball hits you on the leg, you're still out. It's up to the umpire to decide if it, would, of, have if it would have hit the wicket. A lot of controversy. Would it have hit the wicket? Would it not? Now we have technology that shows that. And they decided to use the technology. If the team thinks it would have hit the wicket, the umpire said not out, they can appeal. Can I raise a point about this? I've thought about this a lot. If you have robot umpires, which is not what you'd actually have, but let's just call them that, right? It would Compu- look the same. Computer it would umpires. look the same. Well, would it? Because here's why. First of all, you would let, let's let's start by saying you wouldn't have this in Little League. It would be too expensive. Yeah. You would start at probably the high minors. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, so then you get to the major leagues, and okay, fine. Now, we all think about this as a batter pitcher thing, but there's another piece to this as well, which is the catcher. So right now, a catcher who is a good pitch framer mm-hmm. is more valuable. So you have a skill that you develop it's as a, a catcher. It's a skill of deceit. But you still a skill. You have a skill. I mean, and, and, but it's also it's it's a skill of deceit. But it's also a skill not of deceit. A bad catcher, and if you watch, you see this all the time. Who catches the ball lazily will take the ball out of the strike zone, right? So, so but if you just have just think about that for a second. You do, you have to develop the skill of receiving, right? And you work on it all through. Yeah. And you. then and then suddenly suddenly it's not important anymore. But there's but not just not just the the, the framing, right? Mm-hmm. The whole. The, think of all the other things the catcher has to do. The catchers, I'm not going to squat here, but the catcher has to take this yeah. kind of uh, difficult physical position so they can give a low target and then jump up and throw, you know, yeah. to second base and, and, if necessary. And the catcher is the most important but, person on the field. Yeah. But, but if there's no, if there's a robot umpire, the catcher doesn't have to squat as much, right? That changes that position. The catcher maybe with the catcher still has to call the the balls and strikes he thinks it will sure, get he has to call the the pitch, out but he can do that from pitch. a standing position he can take the ball in a bounce when there's no one when there's no one on base you'd have to the, the point I'm making is one it would change the optics of the game in a weird way some catchers would figure out ways to exploit that right 
in yeah. some respects, you know, so you'd have you, to think about you that. You still but, have to give the pitcher also, a target. But also, you wouldn't, you would, young catchers would develop very differently because the primary skill they're developing would become irrelevant at the highest level of the game. I don't think so. You still have to give the pitcher a target. You've still got to put your glove in the place that you want that ball to, to land in. And, and so that's the skill of the catcher, calling those pitches and then catching them and doing all those other things the catcher does. Framing the ball is a piece of deceit, is a piece of gamesmanship, which is accepted as part of baseball. Yes, it is part of baseball. It's part of baseball, mm-hmm. but it is a piece of deceit. Uh, um, that is, it was outside the strike zone and you pull it back inside the strike zone. Okay, it's a skill, but it's a skill of deceit. I'm not, I'm not sure we want to you know, fight for that particular skill. But you wouldn't even need to catch the ball until there were two, three, two strikes on the batter. You wouldn't even well, need to catch the ball. Well, you would if there's a player on base. If there's no one on base, of course, there's no one on base. I mean, it, it, it would change the game a little bit. And, and I'm, not, I'm not advocating it, but I'm just saying the technology is there. And it's, you know, the trend in sports around the world is right. use the technology in soccer. Um, is the ball over the line? Now they use technology. And I, would, I think within 10 years we'll see this because we're already seeing, you know, the introduction of the uh, instant replay. Replay review, whatever they call it, which mm-hmm. I think has made the game better. I, I, I know there's some controversy around it, but I like that. Why not get the call I, right? I, I think it, it's made the game better. What I don't like about the instant review is the suspended uh, moments while the team decides whether or not to right. appeal. Right? Make the decision immediately. Right. Don't go to your television guy right. first. That should be the manager's job. We're playing him plenty of money. He's got a team there. Make the decision right. on the spot. Don't go to your video yeah, guy. To make sure you're right. To first. make sure. And right. I, would, I would give like a five or ten seconds yes. or so forth period. Mm-hmm. If you're going to appeal, appeal. Maybe give them an extra appeal. Now, Maybe thing, to, to, to balance that. Right. Because the point of this rule is that it's supposed to like, a, like everybody can tell that the call was wrong. And, if everybody, and, and it, it should be like, well, we don't really know. We have to And also, your question about speeding up the game, right? This yeah, absolutely. Time to the game. Yeah, that's absolutely. I want to, one more thought about your, your automatic um, is that however it gets done, this also is both a, a pace of game issue because if you take two more seconds to decide every pitch, Right, mm-hmm. that can be that's going to add four hundred eighty. That's going to add whatever four hundred eighty divided by sixty. That's going to add eight minutes to the game, no matter what. Right there. Mm-hmm. But if you add a little more, it will add a little more. But also, it's a kind of it's a there's a tempo to it, right? Some pitchers like to work fast. They want to get you. You got so that that just the technology has to be there so it's instantaneous. Otherwise, it is. I think it is instantaneous because um, um, the 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 program I saw had a red or green light. I think right. immediately going up. And you can either put it straight into the umpire's ear, or he can see the red or the green light for, for strikes for balls. You know, there's a, there's one. I want to give you each chance one more question. I want to tell one story about that. Ron Luciano, who was a famous American League umpire, mm-hmm. ended up sadly ended up killing himself. I don't know if people are aware of that. It was kind of a very sad story. But he was a very public figure. He, became, he announced briefly. He was known as a very bit of a showman. And he told a story in his first book, "The Umpire Strikes The Umpire Strikes Back." This was right when Star Wars first came out, yeah. <laughs> and um, where they were introducing this idea. And the idea was that there would be like a, like a, a, a force field kind of mm-hmm. thing that, that the ball, as it went through, would either tip it for green or not tip it for red, right? And they did this in spring training. The Yankees catcher at the time was Thurman Munson, who also tragically died in a plane crash a few years after this incident. And what Munson decided, figured out, was that with his catcher's glove, I'm left-handed, so I can with his catcher's glove, mm-hmm. he could tip it so that he could, if the, the, the glove could trip the thing and call yeah. it a strike, so, so, of course, this wasn't going to work. So then they went back and they said, we've got to fix this problem. And they inserted a chip in the ball. And they said, okay, and they're about to reintroduce it. And they said, just one thing, this is very expensive, so don't hit it. <laughs> <laughs> and 
Well, because the camera avoids that problem. Right. Like this, is, this was 40 well. years ago. We have better yeah. technology right. today. Right. Yeah, it's a digital revolution that has really given us the skills here. And I think, you know, there's going to come a time when a bad call is going to cost a team a game, you know, in a big, big game. Well, the 1985 and World Series is the case of that. Mm-hmm. Right? But, but started, the yeah. technology wasn't really available then. Video. This was in the ball strike. This was video replay. Okay. You, everyone knew it. It was a play at first base. Mm. And he called him out and he was safe. If I was right. Orto running. No, it was Orto was out and he was safe. I forget what. Yeah, it was. It was yeah, he I must have know. actually been out and they called him safe because mm-hmm. the Royals ended up winning that World Series. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. All right, so why don't we ask one more? Then I've taken a lot of time. and um, So maybe one well, more question. Each well, I, I guess my, my question, I, I was just curious about what you, what you thought the, you know, the, the Brexit vote meant for just democracy in general because I think certainly a lot of the things that I read is like, oh, how could they think that way? Yeah. But, but, but there's also, there's, there's a bit of an elitist attitude about that also, like these people yeah. should know better. So Yeah, John, I mean, I mean, first it's a preliminary question. Mm-hmm. Should it have gone to a plebiscite at all? Mm-hmm. Right? Should it have gone to a plebiscite at all? The reason it went to a plebiscite was that Cameron could not resolve a problem within his conservative party. And so he elevated this problem to a national problem. It wasn't a national problem. Mm-hmm. It was a problem within the Conservative Party, and, and you've got to solve that problem within that party. That's, mm-hmm. that's the way it should work. The Scotland um, um, independence vote, that is a vote that needs to go to the people. Mm-hmm. The Colombian truce peace vote, mm-hmm. that is a vote that needs to go to the people. Mm-hmm. But the Brexit vote should never have gone to a referendum, and we've just had that in Australia. Um, um, a lot of people wanted gay marriage equality, right, because of the Supreme Court's decision in the US and the trend in the world. Not that Australians marry anyway. Marriage is dying, but it was it's the equality bit that's important, not the marriage bit. The equality bit is important. And within the, the, the Progressive Party, fine. Within the Conservative Party, diehards, no, 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 and some progressives, yes, we must have it. They cannot resolve it. Let's put it to a referendum. Exactly the same problem as, as Brexit. But um, the referendum can only happen if Parliament allows it to happen. It has been blocked in the Parliament. So it sounds like, you know, we're against... The progressives are against marriage equality in Australia. No. What they're against is an ugly campaign that gives a platform to all these God-botherers and, you know, conservatives and so forth that wouldn't have a platform otherwise. And not putting the gay community through this trauma uh, um, uh, that they would have been through, it's Parliament's job to take that vote, and it was Parliament's job to take the vote in in Brexit. So that's the the preliminary issue. You know, we, we don't want... We, we don't have agora democracy where everybody meets in the square and all the household leaders vote. We don't have that anymore. We don't have direct democracy where every important decision goes to the plebiscite. We have representative democracy where we want our representatives to do their job. And that's what should have happened in Brexit. Now, it went to a vote. Um, and I think it, the vote does show some of these sort of problems. Um, uh, um, it shows problems of democracy as well. Let me just give you a, a... Young people voted to stay in Europe. Old codgers, especially from the north, voted to get out. Mm. Um, they're going to die soon, and the young people are going to be left with that decision. So th- there's a sort of an issue of uh, um, should the vote have somehow been weighted so those most impacted would have had more That's say? That's a fascinating question. You could apply to any election. You can apply that to a lot of elections. Uh, I mean, one of the things I think that this really does raise is is 18 
the correct age now? Or should people vote at 17? Or maybe even 16? In the Scottish referendum, the age was 16 for that very reason, that it was going to mean so much to, to uh, these people and uh, uh, let, let them have a chance to vote. Um, but there was a, an age differential in this. There was a regional differential as well. And what it, it told us, something that we know in American politics as well, globalization has winners and losers. And the losers are really angry. Uh, and the winners are not particularly magnanimous in spreading the wealth. Uh, um, so, you know, that's an issue. That's where government comes in, by the way. The answer to that problem is government steps in and taxes those winners and mm -hmm. spreads in social services and infrastructure and benefits, spreads it to those who didn't win in the globalisation game. And, and unfortunately, you can't do that in the US because taxation is such an ugly word uh, in this country, but it's actually the, one of the main things a government does, yes. and they've, they've got to do it sensibly. And, and, and you know, not, not taxing the price of petrol is one of the great outrages of American politics now, especially what was happening in New Jersey, where they allow the price to go all, way down, and their infrastructure is falling apart, and they're wondering, what, the, what should we do about it? You know, uh, so... Um, the losers in the in the globalization game voted for anything that you know was somehow beyond their national borders and beyond their national understanding, uh, um, and and that's a very poor result. And I think we have a very similar you know situation here. Um, one of the ugly uh, um, uh, uh, repercussions of the current election is international trade agreements are now seen as a bad thing. They're a good thing. They're clearly a good thing. Uh, um, and, and, and the Trans-Pacific Partnership is a very good agreement. It will have tremendous impacts in the US, positive, but it'll have tremendous impacts in Asia. It will really, you know, be one of those forces that will try to transform Asia. I mean, for example, if the, if the TPP goes to infect, into effect, Vietnam must allow trade unions. That will be a real challenge to their communist system, having proper, right. true Dependent. trade unions, not tame trade unions that are part of the party. So, yeah, uh, um, there are big issues involved here, but my main point is Brexit should never have gone to a vote. Right. Mm -hmm. You have one, one question for John. So, again, it's a more general baseball question. Uh, um, we saw it with the Yankees uh, 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 this year. It's, it's the balance between um, buying, you know, known entities, sluggers and closers and so forth, and developing your youth. Um, and I think, I don't know if the figures show this, but my sense is that investing in the, in the young players somehow works better than trying to buy a Beltran, you know, uh, to, to deliver his 20 home runs, you know, for the second half of the season or so forth. I don't think Beltran did that for Texas, by the way. Uh, um, I'm not sure he was such a success for them. Mm -hmm. but, but, you know, this idea that you, you buy, you know, your big talent rather than develop it, what do you think? 
Well, uh, quickly speaking of, of Beltran, um, when the when the Mets um, traded Beltran to the Giants, and, and at least on this end, it was like, oh, the Mets got Zach Wheeler. This is really great. They're rebuilding. They're getting this great young pitcher, and and, and the Giants are just getting this rental for two months, which then then he, he left. Well, now granted, there's issues of, of the, the money that Beltran was making, but but it's been like five years, and Beltran has, has for the most part been a successful player for all that time, and Wheeler has had a part of like one good year, and he's he's he hasn't pitched in two years in the major league. He's he's got a questionable future. So so the problem with the young players, and certainly the Mets are seeing this with the pitchers, is that there there are no guarantees. And yeah. and you so I think you want to have a balance. I mean, the Yankees a few years ago they had. That's not so much youth and experience. That's pitchers and and batters. I mean, right, pitchers right. are a much more there's, you know a, a another, delicate item. I mean, there's mm. another piece to this also, which which is that the rules have changed around baseball, and the and the kind of customs have changed. So. You it used to be able to really count on a good batch of free agents every year, and you could take mm-hmm. your pick from one or two. Now, most of the good players, if they like where they're playing and they start with teams with any kind of money at all, they, they, they're they, nailed they're down. Tied they're tied into contracts. Right. So you're, like you're yeah. only, in the offseason, you're tending to get free agents. I mean, there's the Robbie Cano opportunities that come up every now and then, but if you want to talk about the Yankees, they went on that spree, Ellsbury and McCann. The same year they got Beltran. Beltran, I think, was the only one of those three that worked out. Ellsbury mm-hmm. and McCann, they, they brought nothing to that. They're not mm-hmm. bad players. They just contributed yeah. nothing meaningful to that team. It, it depends on a lot of things. If you know, I mean, the Cubs, had they not traded their top prospect for Ryan Vogelsong, or not, excuse me, not for Ryan Vogelsong, there's a thing of Ryan Vogelbach, the guy they traded, had, for, for Aldous Chapman, they, they probably would, would have not made it this far. Right, they, they were doing okay before that. No, but they would, they would have had a much tougher time getting through this last series without, mm-hmm. without Chapman. So when it's a specific hole that you can fill with a specific player, there is some sense to it. The problem is, if you do it two or three years in a row, you empty out your farm system. So it's, it's a tactic that needs to be employed carefully, because this is what the Yankees did. The Yankees kept doing it every year, every year, yeah. every year, yeah. and just had no prospects coming yeah. up. And you can't build around players like that, whereas in the old days you kind of could. And and, la- and last year when the, the Mets the Mets got to the World Series because they traded their best prospect Michael Fulmer for Cespedes. Fulmer is now probably going to be the American League Rookie of the Year. He's the Mets have one good young pitcher in the major leagues coming out of their system who's healthy. Unfortunately, he's on the Tigers. But but most Mets fans would say, well, the, the Mets got to the World Series. You have to do that again. Well, but at the time they were going to make that trade, there were rumors that they were offering Fulmer to the Padres for Justin Upton. There was there was a, a, a you know the Jay Bruce for Zach Wheeler trade that fell through. So there's, so even when you make these trades, I mean the Yankees look great on paper now with all these prospects they've gotten, and who knows what's going to happen down the road. And and, yeah, and, and Bird missed the whole season, right? And I, I, I alluded to something earlier uh, when I said that the managers sometimes have different uh, incentives, and I don't want to punch anybody's integrity here. Everybody manager wants to win every game, you know, and wants to win the World Series if they get that they get into the playoffs. But managers. If you lose, as you say, with the kind of accepted strategy, it's not as bad, right? And the same thing with general managers, the people making those decisions. They have to say, can if we are sellers again this year, what does it do to our attendance? What does it do to our fan base? What is the owner sometimes is an irrational person? Hard to imagine, but you know, what do we what do we do in that situation? So you have to have that kind of balance as well. The Yankees should have been sellers for years before this year. They they mm-hmm. finally had the they finally built a consensus in the which is the Yankees are more complicated than most teams that they had to do something like that. They got away from this stupid narrative of, you know, you have to win every year. Yeah. So so it has to do a lot to do with the, the players and, you know, where you are. And then there's, and then there's and we're seeing this with the Yankees now, but we also see it, I mean, if you look at at uh, the Giants, for example, I think the Giants are great, talented accumulators, 
you know, they don't have too many super... The last real great prospect they had was Buster Posey. But let's go back to 2010. What they are is great talent developers. So they take the guys that are kind of the B-plus prospects and they turn them into B-plus major leaguers. That's your... And I'm being, I'm being a, a hard grader. Not a, I used to teach at Columbia, not a Columbia grader, but a hard grader. Um, you know, so that's Crawford, that's Panic, that's Belt, that's Sergio Romo. These guys have been... They were never top, top prospects, but they were developed to challenge for the Yankees. They, they, have, they have done the talent accumulation. There's very few yeah. teams with as much talent. As 20, can you turn that into impact players? That's and, hard work. And, you know, next year, without the, the dead weight of A-Rod and Teixeira, they're going to be a much better team. And without the storylines around them, dragging them down. Mm-hmm. I also think when you build on young players, I mean, everybody wants to build on young players. They're cheaper and they're, they're healthier and they, they mm-hmm. have all, all this potential. But, but you, want to feel, you want to have... The front office needs to have credibility that, that, you're, that you're going to be willing to spend money to get other players and to keep these young players, which the Mets front office doesn't all, yeah. often have that credibility. And you look at a team like Pittsburgh, which which got all these great young players, and, and now some of them, like, they're talking about trading Andrew McCutcheon. I know he hasn't had a good year, but 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 if you have a team, like, look at Tampa Bay a few years ago. If you've got a team, well, 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 they have all these great young players, but we know they're not going to be here for very long. And, I mean, what does that do to a fan base? Yeah. And every now and then you've got to throw Does Tampa them. Bay have a fan base? <laughs> <laughs> It, yeah. When the Yankees are playing, I look right, at the, right, it's yeah, all yeah. Yankees. But every now and then, you've got to just give that player that big contract to show that you're willing to do it. And every right. now and then, you've got to go out and sign a free agent, though you know he's not going to solve the problem because you want to say, hey, we're competitive. And yeah. if you luck into that contract as a yeah. free agent, you know, it's a good deal for you. Well, like I was thinking, because uh, like, you mentioned something about, about David Wright, and the Mets, David Wright is a terrible contract now, but, but the Mets had to sign David Wright. They had to keep David Wright. And I was thinking, he's, about, well, he's the franchise icon. He's the, yeah, yeah. And, and a few years ago, Joe Maurer was the same thing for the Twins. Mm-hmm. And they gave, and, and and all the stories about Maurer was like, well, they, they would mock us with him in the Yankees uniform, in the Red Sox uniform. Well, he's definitely going to another team. And then he signs with the Twins for this enormous contract. Isn't this great? Well, within a couple of years, he can't catch anymore. He's got concussions. And he's, he's, he's still a player, but he's not Joe Maurer anymore. And now the Twins are in last place. I know they're saddled with this terrible contract, but they had to sign him. And baseball has to, uh, there has to be a way that teams can keep and develop these icons. I think there should be some, and I don't know the details of this, but I wrote a piece about this years ago, which is to create, and around the Maurer signing, for, now Maurer turned out on the field to not to be, you know, didn't work out, but to, for each team to identify a franchise player, they can have mm-hmm. one under contract at any time, and almost, and almost some way of, of almost subsidizing that contract. So you just mm-hmm. to keep that, that, you know, if it's the Yankees in the 90s, it's, you know, Derek Jeter, we have, they, they wouldn't need one. But, you know, the Giants, I mean, they gave Buster Posey and Matt Kane huge contracts at mm-hmm. around the same time. Matt Cain has been a disaster since he signed that right. contract. Buster Posey is, you know, if he if he moves to first base now, he'll still end up in Cooperstown. Maybe mm-hmm. not, but he's, yeah. he's been worth every penny of that contract. And if they'd signed neither of them, they wouldn't, mm-hmm. you know, the, the they would not be able to build what they have. So you have to do it sometimes. But no one is Minnesota saying now is saying, gee, thank goodness we signed Joe Maurer. Like, otherwise that wouldn't have worked out. That storyline fell apart very quickly, but at the moment it seemed very mm-hmm. urgent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Actually, I, was, I saw something with, with Buster Posey because I think about like in terms of marketing baseball, both domestically and internationally, that baseball doesn't have these these transcendent stars in, in the public life, and that that when Derek Jeter was retiring, and I'm I'm saying this is a Met fan who doesn't like the Yankees, yeah. but Derek Jeter, I think, was like they, because he's, ultimate, ultimate to the, he's the face of baseball. He's yeah. not the face of baseball, and, and, and I mean he's a face of baseball. But but just this idea. Well, what are we going to do now that Derek Jeter is gone? Well, there are plenty of other. I mean, I mean Buster Posey is somebody who's got three rings. He's got an MVP. He's he's much well, he he better player than either. And Mike, and Mike and Trout. But 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 he's such. Yeah, you stop right. somebody on the street mm. in Frankfurt or mm. Copenhagen right. and ask who Derek Jeter is, they'll mm. know. Right. You, you ask any other baseball player, I doubt it. 
That's really the one player. Mike you stop someone. You, you, if Mike Trout, and I'm borrowing this, I read this somewhere, but if Mike Trout were to be walking down Third Avenue, mm-hmm. your people wouldn't recognize, wouldn't recognize him. Right. Okay. I think I read the same thing as in Slate. Yeah, it's about slight, about yeah. like, it's really, why, why do more people know who Jimmy Garoppolo is than Mike right. Trout? Right. And, that, and, that, and that's, that's, I think, a, a who question Harper for baseball. Is, they know Harper He's is an there. East Coast guy. And Posey, right. is, Posey is close to that. Posey yeah. is close to that. But I think there's an East Coast-West Coast right. thing in there as well. Yeah, because... And, and, and for many years, I mean, Clayton Hershaw to me is the most one of the most right. exciting players in the game, and mm-hmm. he doesn't. I don't think he's quite appreciated for just how good he is. And part of that is because, you know, you can't say this out loud, but I'm going to. He's a better pitcher than Sandy Koufax, and and nobody wants to hear that. That's just not the Dodgers, the story they want to hear. But but he is. And there's he's, no, there's no les majesté. No, there isn't. Yeah. <laughs> we can <laughs> say things like that. Don't try that in Thailand. About <laughs> the king who's just died. Yeah. By the way. That's right. Yeah, I, I don't think Bumgarner gets as, as, as much attention as he did. And, and, the, and the tragedy of Jose Fernandez, when I was reading about like what an interesting and fantastic life that he led, and, and I'm a big baseball fan, and I didn't know most of that stuff, and, and we, we should know about these well, things. Well, it's, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. it's because how we understand baseball differently. Because mm-hmm. you can now, when I, when I was a kid, and I'm not, you know, 40, 30, 40 years ago, if you could name two guys in the minor leagues for your favorite team, you were like a really knowledgeable fan. Yeah. Right? Now, everyone has this, I, I got a, a tweet from a friend of mine who's a Red Sox fan. The Red Sox are playing the Yankees, and, and he said, towards the end of the season, and he said he's watching the game, and he tweets out, other than, I think, Didi Gregorius and, you know, Jacoby Ellsbury, I don't recognize any of these guys on the Reds, on the Yankees. Mm-hmm. And, and the reason is not because he pays attention, but that's how, how we understand baseball now is we go to the, the MLB app, we look at the box score for the team we care about in that game, unless it's the playoffs mm-hmm. or the World Series. Yeah. So you, and, and that kind of, that Sports Illustrated cover story about Jose Fernandez had, had, when he was still alive, you know, had he, you know, the contribution he was making to the Cuban community in Florida... Even if they wrote it, it doesn't get read the same way anymore. We, we consume the media differently, which goes to some of the stuff we talked about earlier on this afternoon. Yeah. All right, well, thank you for participating in this long and winding conversation. I think we've gone to a yeah. few places. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. we've, uh, unfortunately, like every conversation in America, there's, we get trumped. Every conversation in America gets trumped now. Yeah. That should the pain should stop in a few weeks. <laughs> it should all stop then. Uh, um, he won't go away, but he will become a, a much more of a figure of joke, uh, of laughter and jest, uh, um, more than he is right now. If I may throw in like one last question, I mean, I mean, assuming that he does lose and loses badly, as was we expect and hope, do you, what do you think that will mean for the Republican Party? Because he's not going to go away. They, they want him to go away, but he won't. The, the, the Republican Party is in such a mess. I can't even think of a precedent mm-hmm. of somewhere else in the world that mm-hmm. has, has had to face really what won. the Republican Party has had to face. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so a symptom of their problem is they don't want people to vote. That's a problem for a political party. A political party mm-hmm. wants to win votes, not yeah. stop mm-hmm. voting. So they really got a problem. They, they, you know, in American politics, people have tried the demographic arguments over the years, and they've been wrong. You know, so mm-hmm. I remember many years ago, the Democrats were going to win every time because they had, you know, the they had the South mm-hmm. and the Jews. And you know, and therefore they'd always win. And you know, the South and the Jews—that's the magic formula. <laughs> you know, and, and, the, and the trade unions. What about the Southern had, Jews? Where do they? You know, they, they had a formula that disappeared completely right. on them, and so forth. So things can change, but but the Republicans, uh, the demographics are so against them, the way the direction they're moving, um, and and their their base, 
their, their call support is becoming so noisy and uh, um, you know, non-representative of the nation that I really worry for them. Um, and, and the problem for American politics is the two-party system has been built into the design, right? I mean, the Electoral College, mm -hmm. uh, winner-takes-all in every state is an example of that. Not just the design, but it's been legislated into since it was designed. So it's actually yeah. stronger than just what you see in the Constitution. Absolutely. It's, it's because parties, you know, basically design systems for their... Right, to, keep uh, uh, to keep themselves in office. So is, there's a duopoly. And, and even when a party implodes, like the Republicans are doing... Who can take its place? You know, is there another? I mean, uh, um, the libertarians are nonsense. I'm sorry, uh, um, they're just nonsense. What what they're talking about? That you know, they want to go back to the frontier days uh, um, and start there. Well, you know, if we had a time machine, fine. But for today, it's not going to work anymore. So it's very hard to know uh, uh, who can take over the the Republicans in such a way that they can become a viable force again. Not clear that it's, it can even happen. Um, the one thing they've got going for them is Hillary's unpopularity. And you tend to become more unpopular when you go into office. Although, because you start to disappoint people in lots of different see, ways. See, I, 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 I think there is a way out here for the Republicans, but I think, as usual, they let their hatred for Hillary and Obama get the best of them. Because what they should have done is when Donald Trump won the nomination, some Republicans should have run an independent conservative candidate. That candidate would have done well enough and staked out some political territory, especially as the bottom has begun to fall out of the Donald Trump campaign yeah. since October 1st. But now there's nowhere for those votes to go, so they'll stay home, they'll vote for Hillary, they'll vote for Gary Johnson. They're yeah. not gonna they're not gonna the other the other the other side of it is this here's here's what I'd be worried about if I were a Republican. Hillary Clinton, they can either spend another four years, the first four years, trying to stop Hillary Clinton the way they tried to stop Obama. But if not, you know. Once you become president, and Obama's a little bit of an exception on this, nobody cares about your life before you were president. Nobody ran against Reagan in 84 based on what he did before he became president. Or, or, or ridiculed him because of his movies. Or right, or, or Clinton in 96. Yeah. So yeah. now you're judging, when Hillary Clinton runs for re-election, assuming you know, she wins this time, she'll be running on her record. And it won't be this kind of venomous, no one cares yeah. about Benghazi anymore. So, so that shows another weakness in the American design, uh, uh, the American political design. And that weakness is the spoils system, right? Which we don't have in other countries. In another country, a political party could do exactly what you're saying right off this election and plan for four years from now. They could do that. But you can't do that in America because there are thousands of people looking for jobs in the next administration. Sure. Four years of their lives. But they're not going to get those. But well, they, and they this is not exactly because many of them don't want those jobs. And, and of course... Trump isn't going to employ them anyway. Right. He's going to right, employ exactly. them golf buddies. Well, people lose elections all the time and survive to, survive to fight another day. I mean, They've been out of... So the Republicans... See, the American system parks an entire administration somewhere else. Yes. In think tanks, in, in uh, working for corporations, universities, and so forth. It's, no other country does this. Parks an entire administration. They have been parked for eight years. They want to go back into the driver's right. seat. They but want they to drive don't want it. Not if this guy's driving the well, car, though. But they didn't know that during the primaries no, and, right, and right, so right. forth. So there's no concept of, of strategic planning for a political party. They tried after 2012, the autopsy. After 2012, very sensible document. They, they, they buried it immediately. They buried the autopsy. <laughs> but but, but in, in, in fairness to those who crafted the autopsy, or to those who buried the autopsy, they 
you know, it's it's a little bit like just telling somebody to be smarter, right? The Repu- these the Republican Party's problems of I mean, if you are American, if you check these three boxes: white, Christian, and straight, regardless of gender, you're between male. 60, and no, male. no, no. Even if you're female, if you're checking those boxes, you're between sixty-five. Everyone who checks those boxes, that population of Americans, sixty-five to seventy percent of whom will, will vote Republican, possibly even in this election. If you check two or fewer of those boxes, you're anywhere from 70 to 90, 95% likely to vote Democrat. That's the, and, and because of that, what's happened is, I, I don't, I don't want to say all Republicans are racist, because I don't believe that all Republicans are racist. I do believe that there is an enabling of racism within the Republican Party, even when there's not a, an explicitly racist candidate running, like we have this year, because there's no one to watch it, right? You don't, you don't if in, in a room full of, if there's no women in the room, no one's going to check you on that mansplaining or on that sexist commentary. It's less likely to happen. And this is, writ large, what's happened. So when they say we want to appeal more to Latinos, well, <laughs> how? You know what I mean? How do you begin to do that? Not because you're racist, but because of the work. Well, it, no, they had a path to that because they had two Latino candidates there, you know, who, who weren't particularly good spokespeople. Because George for W. Latino. Bush did fine. George W. did fine, exactly. That was a path open. Something else they've lost, they've lost the Asian vote that used to be pretty much leaning towards right. the Republicans. They've just, you know, allowed that to disappear. That might be a significant vote. I mean, it's, you know... Down the road, yeah. Down sure. the road, that could be a much more significant vote. They, they, they're losing that. Um, uh, you know, and, and, and women, even those God-fearing women, you know, that, that vote Republican usually, they have to think twice. This year's going to be different. Yeah. This year you're going to see the bottom. I mean, this is that's where the bottom falls out, is white, straight, college-educated Christian women just saying enough of this lunatic. Yeah. And, and I, I think you're going to see that. And that's, that's this, this mythology about the enthusiasm gap, because we've defined enthusiasm by something that young men display, right? Jumping up and down to rallies, and then we look around and say Hillary Clinton doesn't it's, have enthusiasm. No, but it's that's, about buses... Taking people to vote early. Right, it's about people That's walking. It's about people getting up at seven in the morning to vote, and she has that enthusiasm, but we don't see it in the. And, it's different, measured differently. And, and that's something else. You see, that's a, another thing about American politics and many other countries, not Australia, because we have compulsory attendance at the polls. You don't have to get out the vote. A right. tremendous advantage, frankly, but political parties around the world have to get out the vote, which most political parties. That's nearly all they do is get out the vote. And Not in Australia. They only work on policy because it's the Electoral Commission gets out the vote. And you will see this year... And this year, the, the Democrats are really good at getting out the vote. They're very good at getting out the vote, and they'll be very good at this year. The Republicans are pretty good at it, and they're going to be terrible at it this year because they're not going to try, because Trump doesn't know how to. So that's also going to push a few more. If this were a close race, and I don't really think it's going to be, it would be a, a, one of those marginal things to really watch for, because it could add half to one and a half points to a Clinton margin. And my sense is she's not going to need that. No, she's not going to need it. And, and you can't, you know, if you're a Republican, you can't get out the vote for the downstream ticket. That, that may be all you can do. That doesn't make, but it just doesn't right. work. You know, you can't build up that sort right. of Especially if you don't say, you know, vote for whoever you want for president, but make sure you vote for the GOP for state yeah. senate and, you know, House of Representatives. Right. Or if you try it, take two on the, on the wrap here, since the first one didn't take. <laughs> on the? On the wrap-up, yeah. because... Oh, okay, yes, please. we got another Go tangent there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> John and Roland, thank you again for participating. This has been a great, if if wide-ranging, conversation. Mm -hmm. I hope all of our listeners enjoyed it as much as as we all seem to. Yes, thanks. Thanks again to John and Roland for that great conversation. We will be back with a new podcast next week.
If you want to hear more from me in the meantime, you can follow me on Twitter at Lincoln Mitchell. Oh, buy me some peanuts and grab